<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails. It's your bitch, Christy Oxborough, and with me, as always, the Stevie to my Knicks, Lauren Ash. How you doing? I gotta be honest. Um, I've worn, <laughs> yeah. I've worn the uh, spooky stories and booze, uh, the Halloween merch with the ghosts. Um, yeah, because I'm currently deceased. <laughs> I, I worked myself. <laughs> Into a frenzy. Here's what it is. I was researching this week, and it was one of those weeks, and this always happens to me, and I think anyone else who's self-employed knows what I'm talking about, where it's like, shit just kept coming up, so it kept mm. bumping my time, uh, and I was like, it's okay, I have all day on the record day to organize my notes. Long story short, I did 10 hours today that I did not like look up from my computer, by the end, my eyes just kind of stopped working. Like, it was just, I did it. Like, I finally did it. I worked mm-hmm. myself um, to death. So, no, I'm great. I'm happy to be here. Wasn't going to drink, have a giant glass of wine. I was like, my nerves. <laughs> you know what it is? The other way I killed myself, I don't know if other people do this. I don't know if this is an anxiety thing or not. When I'm really busy and I'm trying to go at a, yeah. at, at a faster speed, I hold yeah. my breath. I don't know why. And then all of a sudden I'll be like, like, it's like I've held my breath to a point of like, oh, God. Oh, it's not good. It's not a way to live. Literally, it's not a way to live. I, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor. Yeah. But that, that doesn't seem great. I've, I, I've always done I this. Am, I find anxiety, myself Annie, holding and my breath. I, I don't hold my breath. I mean, anxiety comes in many forms. It does. I've learned. It does, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, 
I speed up everything I'm doing when I'm like high, high levels of anxiety. And then my brain feels like it's exploding and everything feels like it's going really, really fast and I can't catch up with it. Yeah, that I get that. So I, I do that. a lot of like, bah, 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 like so that I can have a minute. No one in my home likes it. That's fair. I don't like it. But the point <laughs> is that I, uh, that is my like peak level of anxiety where I'm like, my brain is having a meltdown and I'm like, I just try to yell at the world to stop for just a second so that I can like catch up. But I don't think I've ever specifically held my breath. I'm known for gasping wildly at stuff, like to the point where if I gasp, my husband from another room will go, who died? Because <laughs> he just assumes a celebrity has died that has shocked me. Right. And that unfortunately does happen a lot. Uh, well, I'm sorry that you are, uh, I mean, to, to quote a term that you texted me earlier today, a broken shell of a woman. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I did mention that. Yeah. You yeah. know, it was just one of yeah. those things where it's like, I kept getting like at every turn, it was like, my printer runs out of ink and I don't have a replacement <laughs> cartridge. And I've signed up for a service that literally is supposed to monitor my ink levels and send me them, send me replacements when I need them. Guess what, HP? You didn't. <laughs> so then I'm like, it's okay. I'll just I'll just put all my text into navy blue. I'll print it all in navy blue. And then as I'm like trying to 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 like deal with my printer, which is on the floor of my office, which is the same room that has uh, Sharky's litter box, I put my hand in a poop because sometimes I don't know if you if your cats do this, but once in a blue. Mr. Man there, I mean, for lack of a better term, he doesn't wipe. <laughs> They'll just be like a nugget. And it was like, oh. damn it. Um, it was, yeah, it was just one of those days. Do you know what I mean? So it was like at every turn, I just felt like I was being challenged in ways that, again, it's like, I don't, I'm a good person. Like, I pay my taxes. <laughs> like, I, I feel like I deserve a break. I just, I just don't feel like, I'm not asking I'm not asking for like a handout or anything. I'm just asking, can I not put my hand in shit? Like that's all I'm asking. Can I have a break with that? You know? I, I feel like that's pretty bare bones of things to ask for in life. And people will say, oh, maybe you're not cleaning the box enough. It's not that. It's not that. It's that it literally like, it's like he doesn't stay in there long enough. So he has like a hanger on. Mm, oh, he's yeah. a, he's an animal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that metaphorically. Look, uh, shortly before we recorded, because we're recording late, I was like, I don't want to have to, when we're done, I don't want to go deal with the litter box. I'll do it before. So that when we're done, I can just go right to bed. Not that I'll sleep. Not the point. The point is, so I'm like, I'll deal with the cat litter. We got this. I go down there. And on the edge of one of the boxes, because yes... I got the multiple litter boxes on the edge of one. It's like she shit right at the edge, and then it went up to the lid, like up to the side, and just teetering on that. So I knew, I knew it was Evie, because Cheddar <laughs> digs a hole for her feet to stand in while she's pooping, while she's going at all. She digs down till it's nothing puts her little feet in that little hole, and then she shoves her business so far in that litter to go. It's wild to watch her. But <laughs> That feels Evie, unprecedented. Yeah. Evie is just, 
a mess. And she will, she's like, oh God, she's like a, I want to say like a, one of those, remember the sprinklers from our use, the kind of thing? Yeah. She's like that, but she shits just everywhere and hopes for the best. And a lot of times it doesn't get all the way in there. And I did break down and have a very loud, Evie, your ass size to toilet size ratio based on mine, mine is a lot smaller than yours, but I hit the button every time. (laughs) You don't know how to. And I'm having this full on conversation with this cat who's staring at me with like a doesn't know English, doesn't know what I'm saying. And all I'm saying is just please shit in the box. Shit in the box. Listen, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll offer only this to you and then we can stop talking yeah. about cat shit. I, I brought it up. <laughs> um, but I, that's why I got Sharky the Litter Dome that has the lid on it because it's very oh. tall and there's no room for error. The only error is when he doesn't <laughs> stay in there long enough and give his little butt a shake. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will give that. For Cheddar, she she understood the assignment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, God, maybe I need to look into one of these ones with a lid. And then part of me is like, maybe I'll just do one with the lid to start. And then it's like, but she'll always shit over the side. Like, it's man overboard. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> it's I like, do. just put your ass in the box. It's a very large box. You're a very small cat. Figure it out. But that's just... One of the many reasons that I'm quite often a broken woman yeah, is yeah. my pets. Sometimes it's my children. Um, just depends on the day, really. Um, but I, if if we want to go back to my history yeah. of being a broken shell of a human. Sure. I think. <laughs> I could be wrong. I can't wait for this. I, I think it started in high school when I went to visit you. And got stuck with an unfortunately early flight home. Oh, this story. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I I can't even remember the time of the flight. I want to say the flight was like 7 or 8 in the morning or something. Yeah. We, we just, we had to leave very early because we would have been hours away from the airport yes. anyway. So I don't remember our wake up time, but it was like maybe 5 or 6 a.m. Oh, I think it was it earlier. It couldn't have been six. I think, I think it, it was, was like four. Yeah, I think it was like four. Yeah. And I heard that magic number and my brain went, oh, I'll be so angry and grumpy if you wake me up at that time of day. Well, it doesn't make sense to go to sleep at all then. <laughs> yeah. And I remember, too, this was back in the, the days of youth. And I, I remember I slept for, I think, two or three hours. I think I went to bed at one and I was like, I've got to yeah. take a nap. Like, I just have to. And you were, yep. you were adamant. No, no, you're yep. staying up. Yeah. I mean. And how'd that turn you, out for you? <laughs> <laughs> you have always been the best as far as understanding and appreciating the necessity of a nap. I do. I really do. I have always fought it because I, I have that brain that's like, oh, think of the things you could get done instead of napping. It's like, and think of the will to live. Well, yeah. And I <laughs> like, think for me too, yeah, you're right. It did start at a young age. I knew the nap. Now, again, I've talked about it before yeah. on the show. I can nap anytime, place. Like I was like, cl- let me close yeah. my eyes for 15 minutes and I will be, I will be better serving you than if I don't. 
Yeah. I mean, when you came here last, you were like, I just need mm-hmm. like 5, 10, 20 minutes and I'm good to go. And then, dear listeners, she rallies better than anyone I've ever seen. Um, I should have just closed my eyes for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> just, and that that's the joke. There was then a two-hour car ride to the airport. Yeah. And I wasn't driving, so I could have also closed my eyes then. Yeah. But I didn't. I don't remember closing my eyes, but I remember getting on that plane and and waking up kind of laying over top of that. Uh <laughs> over top of my of over top of my table. Your tray, tray. table, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh I got a lot of looks. There may have been some wetness of drool. I think what happened is as soon as that plane took off, my brain was lulled. I couldn't hold it anymore. And I, f- I guarantee I snored. Like, oh. I guarantee I was out so hard. I I bet that the reason I woke up was because I snored myself awake. Yeah, I I think it probably was. Also, I and don't know that it's an easy life. position to sleep like no. like of the letter C. Like you were sleeping like <laughs> I just like that's one way I don't think I could nap. Yeah. You know what I mean? But again, you were at such yeah. a level of exhaustion, it was a different story. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. I mean, I have fallen asleep on a plane before, but not to that level. That was another level even for me, yeah. I, I have a, a gift for being just next level on a plane. I'm very neurotic. I don't want to be there. I'm just, you know, crying and looking at the flight attendants and telling them, no, no, it's just anxiety. I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, there's just a lot of things I hate about it, but I fell asleep so hard. Yeah. And that was back when it was just a a single flight between us, and I bet I slept through that entire flight, and I'm fairly certain I went right to bed when I came I was going to say, I don't think the duration of that flight was, that's not a full night. That's not a full night's sleep. Oh, oh no. I mean, I also want to say that that's the most embarrassing thing I've ever done on a plane. Sure. It's not. (laughs) It's not. What's what's the most embarrassing thing you've done on a plane? I, well, I mean, I'm also need you to know I'm skipping over the time where I didn't actually lock the door when I went into a, the front bathroom of a flight. And so the door opened just enough that I made direct eye contact with an old man (laughs) sitting in the front row. And then I closed the door very quickly and was like, well, that's horrifying. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. That was, that for me was my uh, second one. But um, I think my first has to be when I'm, when you get on a flight. No, no, I can't say you. I'm not sure anybody else sane does this. When, when I get on a flight, sometimes I just like to be like, I could be anybody. Nobody knows who I am. I can, you know, do be anybody, do anything. Okay. Nobody has a clue. So I got it in my head that I was going to pretend to be French. You've I don't never told me a this. Lick of it. You've I do never not. told me this. 
I do not speak a lick of it. And so, but how was I going to do that? Um, I, I, for some reason, wanted my seatmate uh, to believe that I could, that I only spoke French. And I think part of it was in, in the hopes that meant he wouldn't talk to me. Oh, wait a minute. This is coming back to me now. Yes, I remember this now. <laughs> and so I purposely did this very, like, Oscar award winning uh, moment. Sure. I thought where I would have my earbuds in and I wouldn't have music on, but he would think I have music on because I've got my earbuds in, right? Already clever, Meryl. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then I'm like, okay, okay, I can do this. So I'm listening to the announcements, but then once they start doing them in French, I take out the earbud and listen very pensively. Like I'm, I'm, I'm listening. I'm taking it in. I'm understanding. I'm like, mmm, mmm. <laughs> and then like <laughs> earbud back in, and I would do that throughout the flight. Anytime I heard an announcement, I would pause the iPod, wait, and then as soon as it started in French, then I would take it out and listen. And I wanted so badly for him to think that I spoke French. And in the end, he never spoke to me, so it didn't matter. But somehow it mattered to me, and I was some French woman I also Some, just have to check in on know, how old were you when you did this? Like in my 20s? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I thought so. I thought so. Look, I mean, yeah. first of all, she says she's not an actor and yet she's making choices that are out of this world. Um, and also, I, this is, I mean, I don't question it. I don't question it. This is the same kid who told her schoolmates, her parents died in a bar fight <laughs> fire. <laughs> I did. So it doesn't, nothing shocks me, I guess, is the point anymore. <laughs> I mean, in my defense to that. Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> again, the flight thing is nothing compared to the majority of my life. Um, I moved around a lot. Yes. And I, got oh. to, I learned, like, I was always the new kid and I hated it. And so that was my moment in time in the third grade when I was like seven or eight and I was like this is it I again oh my god it's my mo I go in somewhere and I'm like I can be anyone I can be whoever I want to be and that was my sad life of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was adopted yeah uh, and uh after my parents tragically died yeah my parents who look just like me. <laughs> exactly. You're, you're very biological parents. The bloodline yeah, it, that ties you to me. Yeah. It was wild that that was even a thing. And what's even more wild is how accepting those children were. And they just did like a, huh. And then we all moved on with our lives. So I, I feel like that was them being like, I don't buy it, but she seems messed up. Let's leave her alone. And then that was it. And they never questioned it again. I did not try that move again when we moved a few years later. I am not in contact with any of those people anymore, so I guess it doesn't matter. In the end, I just feel like I was trying on new personalities every move just to see what one stuck. And apparently, anxious and neurotic is the winner. <laughs> 
So that's great. Listen, uh, the best person I know. How about that one? Oh, how about well, that's the personality? <laughs> I fictitiously killed my parents in a bar fight. You were doing the best you could. You were doing the best you could. Yeah, at eight. Yeah. So I'm I'm concerned about that child. But again, you know, that I'm child a bit just like what had she been? Through? Well, she what she's been through is watching Roadhouse. That's what it is. So it's <laughs> I don't think you can own that too hard. Come on. Oh, I mean, I also have that this would explain a lot about some of my choices. Well, I have a I only watched Roadhouse for the first time in the past couple of years, and I was like, this is a gift <sighs> in my life. And then I became obsessed with wanting to recreate shot for shot. Uh, a version of the movie with me as Patrick Swayze's role and in the Sam Elliott role, Ben Feldman. Because <laughs> I just thought that dynamic would just be so funny. Um, stay tuned. Who knows? Who knows? I mean, maybe I should start a Kickstarter. <laughs> oh, we could get that crowdfunded. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I'll call him tomorrow. Look, I'm willing to pause this. <laughs> Take a moment to call him. No, no. Uh, tell him I say hi. I will. Um, it's just, what a gift. What a gift in our lives. Yeah. That would be. Yeah. Look, I'm also completely up for, like, a lady roadhouse, where it's, the bar is just all female staff who are going to kick your ass out. Oh, Yeah. I think that I that like was that maybe idea. part of my idea, but the one character that would remain male would be Sam Elliott's character and played by Ben Feldman, who, let's be honest, he's just, <laughs> I, this is going to be a soundbite that haunts me, I was going to say, he's a soft, sensitive man. <laughs> I mean it as a compliment, but you know what I mean. Would he have the Sam Elliott mustache? A hundred percent, yes. Okay, thank God. Thank yeah. God. Yeah. Well... Yeah, I got to get on this now. I got to tell him to start growing that stash in. What I love is you are like, if we're doing this, that stash is going to be real. Yep. Because we can't use any of the crowd funds <laughs> for makeup purposes. No. And on the first day of filming, I'm going to be like a kid at, at, with a Santa going, let me tug on it to make sure it's real. You got to know. You got to know. You got to know. Can the soft, sensitive man... Grow a Sam Elliott. Yeah. A soft Sam. I think it's... Come on. <laughs> this picture writes itself. It does. It does. Absolutely. Oh, God. We... Like, it's turning into... I thought you were going to be the broken shell, and I just feel like we're just a couple of eggs in a, in a basket. You know what I mean? I have to say, listen, I should never have doubted that you would bring me back to life. I came into this a ghost and you've resuscitated me with your presence. So there you go. No joke. I was picking out the outfit to wear for today. And I was like, well, today we're talking about a serial killer. So I'll wear the Christmas merch because it has knives. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was my thought. And then I was like, I'll be head to toe Christmas. And then I was like, no, I won't. I would have been like, we were going to both be seasons. Oh. Which makes me think of, and I know, I don't think you've ever seen it, so this means nothing to you, uh, the song Girl of All Seasons from uh, Grease 2. No, I don't know it. I was thinking Seasons of Love from Rent. Of course, because yeah. that is more natural <laughs> nope. to think People of. People love Grease 2, no? Grease 2 
is one of my favorite things in the world, and I might make you watch it sometime. I'm ready. Just because I feel like, one, you'll end up with a crush on Michelle Pfeiffer if you don't have one already, and two, you'll be like, how did this get me? Yeah, I love those. And then it's like, wait, how is this one not beloved more than the original? And it's like, that, that's it for me, because there's one person, no, maybe two, the same in the two movies, and that's it. But it's somehow supposed to be the same school. There's a lot of things. But I could sing that soundtrack for life. And they, oh, it's the the girl of all, girls from all seasons. And I, I can't. I'm not going to get into it. But the point is just knowing. I'm ready. Heart. I'm ready to go. I'm into it. Yep. Just know. Uh, so I've already teased the fact that we are talking today about a serial killer. Yeah. And it's one that I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest with you. I had never heard of her. I hadn't either. So yeah. See, so I can't wait. I assume I should just probably get into this. I learned nothing about her in advance. Yeah, because that's how Mama likes it. <laughs> Are you meaning Mama as yourself or as me? Because I was gonna say that I do like it. I like because I like just hearing her reactions in real time. I meant, I meant mama as me, but it actually works for both of us. Yeah. But I really don't like calling myself mama. Then be my AC Slater and call me mama. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, then I better step up my game so every once in a while you can call me a pig and we move on with our lives. <laughs> you know? I do. I do. And you know what? I would take you to the ballet if you wanted to go. Thank you. Thank you. That's beautiful. That's a deep cut to that show, and God, I hope people get it. I got it. I'm sure somebody will. I did. Oh, I knew you would. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, God. Someday we are going to get together, and we're just going to start to finish Saved by the Bell. All of it. I like that we're idea. We're just going to like cram in as yep. much of it as possible, yep. and at hour nine, we'll be like, how is this still going? And we'll be crazy. I love it. And then we'll be like, oh, God, it's over. I guess Grease too." <laughs> <laughs> of course. And then that's just where we're at. So I've be somehow become a shell in the process of the last 20 minutes of our lives. So we're, uh, we're going to read this and we're going to get into it and just see what happens and where the energy of this episode is going to continue because I... I'm both frightened and delighted. I'm jazzed. I've time. I've gone from jizzed to jazzed, so well, I'm in a great place. I could not be happier if you thought the quote about Ben Feldman was going to come back to bite you from jizzed to jazzed. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Probably will sting a little more. Yeah. So today we are talking about Joanna Dennehy? Yes. Right? Yep. I'm saying that correctly? You are. Uh, this is what Lauren has to say. Over 10 days in 2013, 31-year-old Joanna Dennehy went on a killing spree, leaving three men dead and two badly wounded. This rampage made her one of the most prolific serial killers the UK has ever seen. 
What makes her especially unique is that unlike other female serial killers who either kill for revenge, personal gain, or alongside a male partner, Joanna was a self-motivated murderer who killed simply because she liked the thrill. So what drove this woman to commit these crimes? How did she pull off the killings by herself? And just how twisted were the detail of these crimes? Lauren Ash investigates. Thanks, Christy. <laughs> I love the word. We like to play news show now. Um, I already have to preface that there was already something in there that's not 100% correct. It, it was more than 10 days. It, it ended up being more like two weeks, but we're going to get into the timeline of it as we go. So just know that. Um, I still find it impressive. Thank you. Your way to <laughs> thank you. have that many things happen in that length. Oh, she got a lot done. Yeah. Um, okay. So it's been a while since I've done a serial killer special and I felt like it was time. And I was thinking of covering Aileen Warnos, who of course is most notable uh, as being portrayed by Charlize Theron in the movie Monster. But when I started my research, that's when I discovered Joanna Dennehy. Now, this is a case that I had never heard of before, but the details chilled me in a way that so many other serial killers haven't. And so that's why I decided to go with where the story took me and delve into Joanna Dennehy, um, a truly unique female serial killer, truly. Now, I also want to preface this by saying sometimes she calls herself Joanne, sometimes Joanna it appears to me that she used both. So if I go back and forth, forgive me. I also want to preface this episode by saying there will be mentions of self-harm, sexual assault, and truly gruesome details about these crimes. So please uh, consider this a trigger warning if you need it. I also apologize in advance. This takes place in the UK, and I know I am going to mispronounce town names. <laughs> So I apologize in advance for that, too. I tried to write things in phonetically, but again, we'll see what happens. So Joanna Dennehy was born August 1982 in St. Albans, Hertfordshire. Hertfordshire, Hertfordshire. It's already going off the rails. Um, she lived with her mother. <laughs> thank you. Her mother, Kathleen, her father, Kevin, and her younger sister, Maria. Their mother worked in a grocery store and their father was a security guard. Her upbringing was, by all accounts, stable and loving. She was described as having a secure family home and she herself was described as a bright and happy child. Many have described her childhood as being a perfect foundational upbringing. Words like normal, uneventful. This is the stuff that keeps coming up in my research. Growing up, she and her younger sister Maria were very close. One report I read said that they had even made up their own language as children. As a child, she was a model daughter. There were no hints of psychopathic tendencies, unlike other serial killers who in their childhood often show signs like killing small animals, lacking empathy for others, etc. Joanna did not do any of those things. She was trauma-free and by all accounts, relatively normal. As a young child, she did well in school. At age 12, she was enth enthusiastic at sports, was a very good student. Her parents even paid for extra classes so that she could try to reach her goal of becoming a lawyer one day. Her sister and her parents say that she was happy and engaged until age 13, but by, and by the time she was 15, there was a dramatic shift in her personality. Um... Just lost my place on my page. There we are. She started to skip school. She was hanging out with older boys and regularly started experimenting with drugs and alcohol. At age 15, she ran away from home with an older man, 21-year-old John Trainer. 
John has said that she had definitely been getting drunk at school before she met him. And I think he just wants people to know that he doesn't feel like he was responsible for her kind of unraveling. Because I think there's been a lot of focus on him about, did you turn her into a psychopathic killer, right? Because he happened to be there at the point where she seems to have broken off a different direction. And they're like, well, what's to blame? It's that guy. Exactly. Sure. That makes sense. Um I will also add that there was a schoolmate of hers named Marika who said that around this time, Joanna started badly, badly bullying her. So it does kind of check out, that does corroborate uh, John Trainer's stories. Um, I will also just remind, he was 21 and she was 15, which was illegal. Uh, he claims that they didn't have sex until she was 16. Because that was the age of consent, which feels like I, I I don't I don't know. I mean, I feel for the guy in general, but that detail, I was like, that feels shady. Uh, her parents said that they tried to keep her home. Her teachers tried to reprimand her. But all the more people tried to control Joanna, the worse she got. And this was what eventually led to her running away with John. He says she got into a huge fight with her mother and came to his house saying she was running away and he decided to go with her. John says for their first year together, they, quote, lived rough. I was like, what does that mean? I'll tell you. He says they lived in a tent, often sleeping in public places like railroad stations or garages. Eventually, they rented a shared room together. He said that Joanna loved that kind of transient life and that he hated it. In 1999, they got a house together and she soon became pregnant. I will remind you, she was 17 at that time. John claims again that he did not have sex with her until she was 16, the age of consent, but... Regardless, we know by 17 she was pregnant for, with her first child. John also makes it clear Joanna did not smoke, drink, or do any drugs at all in either of her two pregnancies with their children. Um, that wasn't the issue. The issue was as soon as her first daughter was born, she did not want anything to do with it. She did not want to care for that baby, feed that baby, bathe that baby, change that baby. She literally, he he kind of described it as like, she kind of just hold it with her arms out. She He also oh. said that it didn't feel like she was able to connect to being loving towards the children when they were babies. He said that his inter, her interactions were to like tough wrestle, which is also kind of I'm I'm I, and I forgive me I'm not trying to talk about gender norms but I think typically mothers of small children typically especially mothers of daughters and never say never but it, again this is painting a much bigger picture of a very specific person so I I did think it was interesting yeah. to note he also said that she did used to take their oldest daughter down to the dikes which is where she would of course later dump the bodies of the men that she murdered which is a little bit chilling yeah, she often cheated on John. At one point, she had gone and cheated on him, came home, and then told him everything that had happened. And soon after this, she just disappeared for a year and a half, and John has absolutely no idea where she was or what she was doing. And at this point, she has a very small child. So she eventually comes back, and that's when she got pregnant with their second child, and things got more extreme. He said that she would sometimes put pins through the skin in her arms, so she would just have all these pins kind of, like, stuck into herself. Oh, um, yeah. He also says that he thinks that what she was doing was coming home to get normalcy, because it should also be noted that she really, really used alcohol. Like, we're talking a real... A, a high amount of alcohol. Um, 
He did say that she had alluded to doing drugs at times, but that it was really alcohol that was more of the thing for her. Um, She would go away, drink so much that she wouldn't know what she was doing, and then she would come home to his house to just be normal for a bit before going back out and doing it again. Um, She was getting paid. She was working on farms, and she was getting – she was asking to get paid in either whiskey or vodka. She was literally working for alcohol, and then he's like, this isn't helpful. Like, I need help. We have two children at this point. You need to be bringing in cash type thing. Then, of course, things started to get a little bit dangerous. John says that Joanna almost scalded their younger daughter in the bath when she was so drunk she didn't realize that she had only put hot water into the tub and it was scalding hot. She also once drunkenly stumbled into their older daughter, almost knocking her down the stairs. He says she was also violent with him, that she punched him in the face and he has a scar above his left eye from one of the incidents. Basically, he said that that there was five years they had together that was just pure torture. He said every day it was something else. She was constantly mentally abusive. She would drink and she did have a tendency to cut herself when she drank. He says he doesn't know what happened to that to her in that year and a half that they were apart, but just that she came back different. She was a lot more aggressive, a lot more in your face. He said that he wasn't personally scared of her for himself, but he was terrified of her with the children. So... He also says that he wasn't happy in the relationship at this point, but he was just really trying to see if he could make it work and keep the family together for the sake of the children until there was one final incident that was the straw that broke that back. One night in 2009, their children were in bed and John says, and this is his description, Joanna was steaming drunk. She had been in the house only about a half an hour and had a knife out. At this point, she had not cut herself as she was normally to do, but she was rambling, stumbling around, and she was sitting on the floor and stabbed the knife in the floor and said, I could kill someone. She stabbed it with such force that the knife stayed stuck in the floor until she had to, like, reef it out. And she put the knife back into her boot, which is where she kept it, and left. The next morning, he took his oldest daughter to school And who's there already? Joanna with a black bag full of booze. And she was screaming and causing a scene in front of all the other parents doing their drop-offs. By lunchtime of that day, he had pulled his oldest child from school. I believe the youngest wasn't in school yet. Called his mom. He said, "I'm, I'm out. And he literally just left his house on the lot with all the the belongings in it. And he took off with those kids because he said at this point, he was so terrified for their safety. And she was so out of control and volatile that in his gut, he was like, I have to get these kids out of here, which I also am like, that feels. Okay. Can I say kudos to this man? Because when you said he's 21, I know 15, I know I was like, Oh, here we go. And he, he gets her pregnant and is like, you know what? Okay. Let's make this family work. She leaves. He continues to care for the child. She comes back. He cares for another child. And then he puts the children first. Oh. I, I've gone on a real roller coaster. John. <laughs> so have I. In the last 10 minutes. I felt the same way. I felt the same way when I was reading about this. I was like, the 21 and 15 is pretty egregious. I, I mean, it is yes. egregious, period. Full stop. End of sentence. But you're right. I do also commend him that he did really step up for those children. He raised the children on his own, essentially, for like 12 years. Um, and he did wow. at some point, uh, 
he met someone and, and he does have a partner in his life now. And he said that oh, his daughters nice. really love her and that it's it's a good situation. Unfortunately, <laughs> Joanna has still obviously wreaked havoc in their lives based on uh, the things that she has done. Um, yeah. So the other thing that John mentioned was that Joanna had been threatening the other moms at school. So he had a relationship, like friend-level relationship with the other moms of the other kids, which people, anyone who has kids knows. You do these drop-offs. You see the same people every day. That's not abnormal. But she was not okay with it. At one point, this is obviously prior to him getting out of there, he was pulled into a meeting with a social worker, the head teacher, and his daughter's teacher, and was told that Joanna was not to come to the school anymore. She had been threatening people. Um, and he said that he felt it was because she just wanted to try to control him. Um, but John and Joanna's oldest daughter, Cheyenne, who was born, I believe in 2000. So she's like 21, 22 now. Um, she recently, she'd be 22 this year. She recently came forward with more, uh, insight on this time in Joanne's life. That is wild. She says she remembers her mom seeking male attention when Cheyenne was a child. She would wear revealing clothing. She'd be making moves on men in front of Cheyenne's dad. She says that there were times she'd be taken into a man's house to play with his children. Well, Joanna would go and have sex with those dads in the other room. This turned into Cheyenne not getting invited to birthday parties because everyone was scared of her mother um, and scared that she'd sleep with their dads. I'm sure the moms also were like, this woman's got a got a <laughs> got a pattern, you know? Sure. So Cheyenne went on to say people would fall in love with her and do whatever she wanted. Once she's got her claws into you, you struggle to get out. And that insight coming from one of her children chilled me to my core. So... By 2012, Joanna Dennehy had spent time in prison. She had convictions for theft, drugs, possession of a blade, assault, and owning a dangerous dog. That is a thing I guess you can get charged with over there. Uh, well, in the UK. Yeah. According to Little Spider-Man. Oh! Uh, in, in the UK, uh, pit bulls are, it's illegal to own them. Right, yes. So it's possible she owned a pit bull and they were just automatically like you can't have that dog right because that dog's illegal right i'm sure that that's probably is what it was but any excuse to bring up tom holland i you know i love it shout out <laughs> to the little spider-man um, so from what i can tell she was in prison in early 2012 and underwent psychological testing while there now there are conflicting reports of what exactly she was diagnosed with and whether it was now or later that she was diagnosed but all all of the diagnoses pointed to her absolutely having a personality disorder of some kind. The diagnosis that I saw reported the most that happened at this time, because she received multiple diagnoses over the course of a couple of years, was antisocial personality disorder and OCD. Um, but there were also underlying psychopathic traits that were noted, such as rage, impulsivity, violence, and anger. Some sources do say that at this time she was prescribed medication to regulate her moods, I only read that in a couple places, so I don't know if it's true or not. It was only something I saw a couple places, so I just want to give that caveat. So later, after she was arrested for the murders, I'm jumping ahead for a second, she was tested again, and she was given an additional diagnosis, which was paraphilia sadomasochism. 
Now, paraphilia is defined as a condition characterized by abnormal sexual desires, typically involving extreme or dangerous activities, and sadomasochists obviously experience excitement from acts involving the infliction of pain, humiliation, or bondage. And this diagnosis makes absolute sense for her, as we do know that Joanna was self-harming, but she wasn't just self-harming, she would also... She would cut herself while she masturbated. So she would oh. take, yeah, knives and razor blades and cut her own stomach and arms while she masturbated. She also was oh. known to, like, hold a knife to her own throat. And she also cut herself in these ways when having sex with people. It was said that she never always had her knife with her, like, even when she was having sex, and that she would do that with some partners. Um, past partners have also said uh, she was scary to be with. <laughs> That's a, that's a quote. Oh, God. So apparently when John took the kids and left her in 2009, that left Joanna without housing. Then we know that she did prison time around 2012. And in 2013, we know that she got out of prison. And that's when she met 48-year-old Kevin Lee in the town of Peterborough. Kevin Lee rented out cheap rooms to people who were essentially vulnerable, people who had just gotten out of prison, who had rap sheets. He was, you know, about giving people second chances. Um, you know, a lot of people were potentially on social assistance and stuff like that. Uh, so that was kind of what he did. He had a business partner named Paul Creed. And when Joanna came in to meet with them, Paul Creed says he did not like the look of her right away and suggested we shouldn't help this woman. It was just like his gut reaction. But she was honest about getting out of jail. She kind of played the sympathy card saying she really needed to get back on her feet. And it worked with Kevin Lee. And he often rented to people who, because of their situations, if they were just getting out of jail, they were having trouble getting employment, all of the above, often people weren't paying their rent. So this was kind of an issue that he was having in general with his business, for lack of a better term. And it was hard to get people to kind of pony up. But Joanna was so tough and aggressive that she offered to be his, like, enforcer. So she would go around and intimidate these renters who were behind on their rent and kind of try and force them into paying their debts. Um, so in return for this, Kevin Lee began paying rent for Joanna. And they also started a sexual relationship. And mm. he was married to a woman named Christina. And they had two children together at the time. Uh, yes, this was absolutely an affair. I'll get into that more in a little bit. Some say that Kevin Lee started telling people that he found Joanna unsettling and scary. One person allegedly said that uh, he described her as a combination of a character from Kill Bill and The Terminator, violent, aggressive, and armed. Um, if he did say those things, which he might have, it should be noted it did not stop him from continuing to have their sexual affair and continuing to have her work for him. So could be true, might not. He's not here, so we don't know. Spoiler sure. alert, he's not here. So some say that Joanna was paid by him for the enforcer work. Others say she did it in exchange for the free rent. Some also speculate that because she was kind of in this better place where she had somewhere to live and, and whatnot, that maybe that made her start to feel more stable than she had in many years. So the, the, the sources that said that she was prescribed uh, meds say that this is when she had gone off of them. Again, I can't, I, I couldn't really confirm that from any uh, multiple sources. So again, take that with a grain of salt, but that's what they reported. Um, 
Either way, we know that she had access to multiple properties that were being rented out by Kevin Lee uh, and Paul Creed. One neighbor, Carla White, said that she witnessed Joanna go to enforce on one young guy who hadn't been paying his payments. And he punched she punched him in the face so hard he was knocked out cold and he moved out the next day. That's her. Wow. That's her uh, account. English lingo side note. Hey. The rental spaces that they were describing were being called something called bed sits. And I had never heard of that before. So I turned to Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Wikipedia tells me that a bed sit, also known as a bed sitter or bed sitting room, is a form of accommodation common in some parts of the UK, which consists of a single room per occupant with all of the occupants in the building typically sharing a bathroom. Bed sits uh, are included in a legal category of dwellings referred to as HMOs or houses in multiple occupation. Bed sits arose from the subdivision of larger dwellings into low-cost accommodations after World War II, when many people wanted to have a sense of independence, so that led to a a reduced demand for traditional boarding houses that would have communal dining. Typically, bed sits do have, like, a little tiny kitchen in in the room. Sure. Bed sits were also common in Dublin and other towns in Ireland, but were banned in 2008 by the Housing Standards for Rented Houses Regulation. Um, They were set to be phased out by February 2013. The health service executive and approved housing bodies can still offer equivalent accommodation, which is mostly used as emergency accommodations for those without housing. And in 2013, um, they did enforce this new law under which landlords were obliged to provide each tenant with a separate bathroom, a four-ring cooker, access to laundry facilities, and other basic facilities, or they risked being fined large amounts of money. Bed sits have since been outlawed in the Republic of Ireland, which is a fun fact and is not at all relevant to this story because this story happened in England, not Ireland, but I digress. (laughs) I just was like impressed by Ireland that they were like, people deserve better than this. I thought that was awesome. I was like, yes. Yes. I mean, it's hard to get. You can't get an apartment in L.A. with laundry, access to laundry. Like, like it's really hard to get. Just an apartment that has laundry in the building, let alone even in the unit. That's crazy. Um, Whereas Toronto, for example, that's not uncommon. It's very common for there to be. Every building has certainly has laundry in the building and lots of them have have it in your unit. And it's not like a huge luxury. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just considered like a necessity, which I think is great. So moving on. Lukasz Slabozuski. I'm so sorry was a 31-year-old Polish man who had come to England to learn English, make money to send back to his parents in Poland, and also have some fun. One of his two sisters lived in London, which was a roughly two-hour drive from where he was staying in March 2013. Lukas was described by his sister as being the joker of the family, always finding something to laugh about. He was working as a delivery driver and kind of drifting. He didn't really have a permanent home of his own, so he would rent rooms when he could. One source says he met Joanna at a property in Orton Goldhay. Peterborough around March 19th, 2013. Another witness says that Joanna told her that they had met at a mall, but Joanna is a pathological liar, so this may or may not be true. Again, I just report the facts as I find them. Either way, Lukash had told his friends that he had met a, quote, English girlfriend. Joanna was flirting with him via texts. Um, many believe that this was him, her kind of winning over his confidence, grooming him a little bit. Lukasz believed it could be a potential relationship, and he even texted a friend, life is beautiful in Polish. He also texted his family that he had met a beautiful girl, and the timing did kind of make it seem like he could have been referring to her. 
Now, her texts to him kind of seem a little bit random, which may seem odd to some, but to him, I think he felt like she was just really into him. One of the texts, for example, said, come to my bed. Uh, So it's easy to surmise that he thought that when he was going to meet up with her on March 19th, 2013, that he was going to probably have some kind of sex with her. He showed up to meet her, came in the door, and she stabbed him in the heart immediately, and he died almost instantly. Jesus. So at this point, as far as we know, Joanna had never harmed anyone other than herself. So this really was kind of a zero to 80 moment for her. And it's very clear that she had been deliberately luring him over to kill him with the promise of sex. Someone in the one documentary I watched called it using her honeypot. And I don't really like that term. It made me feel icky. That's all. (laughs) No. Mm-hmm. No, I don't know. Let's let's leave that let's in leave 2021. That. <laughs> Thank and you. Move on to 2022. So now Joanna has killed and she has a body of a man in front of her. So what does she do? Well, enter a man named Gary Stretch. Real name, Gary Richards. Gary suffered from gigantism and was seven foot three inches tall. He adopted wow. the name Stretch to try and deflect from teasing that he would get. He was in the same kind of drifter's world of people that Joanna was. At one point, he had lived a typical life. He was married, a genuinely devoted father, but soon he became a petty thief and eventually split from his wife. Now, Gary has not been described as a criminal mastermind. He once burgled an entire office only to steal one single chocolate, and he left behind his fingerprints, which got him arrested. (laughs) So, not the brightest bulb in the box. Um, sure, sure. Now, evidence suggests that Gary was really insecure about his looks, his intelligence, his height. Um, I think that that's the reason she kind of targeted him as being a potential accomplice for her. His devotion to her has been described as, quote, pathetic. <laughs> and they wrote each other letters when they were both later in prison where he would sign off your undertaker. Um, He would say things like, you'll never meet another man like me. You can always count on me. His own lawyer described him as a nodding dog doing whatever Joanna said without question. And it does feel like that was the case. And I'm going to get into a lot more of what her kind of MO was with men in a little bit. Um, Joanna trusted him. He was malleable. Uh, I think that they were, her hope was that if she made him implicit in, in the crime, then he would keep quiet so that he didn't incriminate himself, if that makes sense. Because they were both on parole at the time. Um, I didn't look up what the rules were then, but I'm pretty certain you're not supposed to be around other people who have committed felonies. Again, I'm not sure what their rap sheets were like, but I know his was very long. So I don't know that they should have been in contact, is my point. Um, Sure. Regardless of what her actual reasoning may be, she asked him over that night, showed him Lucas's body, and said she needed him Uh, to help her do something with it. So he helped her put Lukash in a wheelie garbage bin, which is one of those kind of like large that people have at an individual house. Like I have ones that are this size type thing. Um, Forensics indicate that he was moved sometime later. When when his body was eventually found, it had been moved, but the forensics suggest that his body had been in the bin for some time before they moved him. Now, we do know that this murder happened March 19th, 2013, based on forensics, 
And we know that his body was not found until April 3rd, so it's possible he could have been in there for some time. Oh, um, More on that. There'll be more on that as we go. But a big part of the high of killing for Joanna was telling people. It was this exhibitionist aspect, and she definitely wanted to brag. Um, she had absolutely no guilt or remorse, straight up bragging. She even showed a local 14-year-old girl Lucas's body in the garbage bin because she just wanted to see the reaction on her face. Um, she would also take pictures of him in the bin that she would then show other people, being like, look what I did. Yeah. Aww. One one guy described her energy when she would show the photos as being something like a child being like, look what I did at school today. Like that energy. Oh, boy. Yeah. Oh. So Lukas, in general, would go days at a time without contacting his sister or his parents in Poland. So very sadly, a large amount of time passed before he was even noticed to be missing. I feel like this was probably one of the reasons why she chose him. He didn't have a large circle of friends. He was newish to that area. He was vulnerable. He was an easy victim. And I think that she was very smart. In fact, we know that she is very smart. And I don't think that anything that she did was not calculated. That's my opinion. After killing Lukas, uh, Joanna moved to another house, also owned by Kevin Lee, where there was a man named Leslie Layton living. Put a pin in that. He's going to come up again in a minute. Now, another man living in that bedsit was John Chapman. He was a sailor. He saw active duty in Falkland Islands in the Royal Navy. And in 2013, at age 56, he was sadly no longer the fit fighting man that he once was. He had tragically developed a fairly large dependency on alcohol and drugs after his wife had passed away. That being said, oh. he was described as lovely, generous, kindly. He was well-liked. He didn't have any really close friends, but anyone who kind of met him only had glowing things to say about him. The kind of general opinion that I kept coming up about him was like, people just really felt bad for him. It was like, this guy has like fought in a war, had this great life, his wife died, and then he just kind of just uh, spiraled, for lack of a better term. Um so again, anytime anyone talks about him, it's with like total tones of compassion. On the evening of Good Friday, March 29th, 2013, John Tra Chapman had taken some drugs and was drinking alcohol. Soon he was either asleep or just barely conscious. Some sources say that Joanna had been tasked by Kevin Lee to kick him out of the house. But other sources say Joanna hated John because she had allegedly caught him uh, looking at her because there was a shared bathroom for the whole house, and I guess she was in the bathroom, but the door was ajar, and she allegedly saw him kind of looking in at her. I mean, you could close the door, so it felt to me like- If I can do it on a plane, <laughs> she can do it in a house. Yeah. It felt, oh my God, I never even thought. That synchronicity's weird. Wow. Right? Yeah. Wow. Um, I've never killed a person. No, do and I she wouldn't be able to. to. She wouldn't be able to. No, I can I'd tell you that. I'd be sick about it. Yeah, you would. Your anxiety would be through the roof. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. So John Chapman had – he was friendly with a neighbor named Michelle Bowles, and she says that he had told her that he was petrified of Joanna. He told her that, quote, a mad woman moved in and said she's going to get rid of me in whatever way she can. Michelle says that she gave John her number and said, call me if there's an issue. We'll get you out of there. But on March 29th, he sadly was not able to take her up on that offer. As Joanna waited until he was drowsy, 
Um, she stabbed him once in the neck and then five times in the chest with so much force, she broke his breastbone. Oh, my God. And punctured his heart. Oh. Yeah. It was a frenzy. That's a, another term that's going to come up a lot. Like, her killings were like these, these frenzied attacks um, that are almost kind of difficult to comprehend because it's it's interesting that she had so much rage that she was willing to inflict on people, which was never kind of like, it was all premeditated. It was never, it wasn't like a crime of passion or self-defense or whatever. It was like, she just planned to viciously attack and, and murder these men. So within seconds, John Chapman was dead uh, with six, from six stab wounds. Um now, Gary Stretch seems to have known that this murder was going to happen because he and Joanna called upon that man I mentioned before, Leslie Layton, to help them with this body. Layton was described as another kind of social misfit, their term, not mine, living a life heavily using drugs and alcohol. Apparently, when he came in and saw John Chapman's body, he took out his phone and took a picture. People don't know whether this was a trophy for him to show his friends or a big moment for him to look back on at times where he's bored. But either way, now Joanna has another man in her orbit that's clearly willing to do whatever she asks of him. So as I kind of mentioned before, John Chapman had no job, no family, no close friends. Um, so again, in the days following his murder, no one was looking for him. Um, he wasn't reported missing. Uh, and so, much like Lukash, this was a good choice of a victim for her. Um, at some point in those in those days, it, it's hard. Again, the timeline is really hard. Um, the three of them ended up moving the body of John Chapman and the body of Lukash into the countryside in a place east of Peterborough. They were discarded in open ditches or dikes, depending on how you want to refer to them. Um it's again, it's it's hard to know exactly what day that happened on. From what I can tell, it appears that that may have happened on March 29th that day. But again, the timeline gets a little hazy at points. So Joanna was described as being invigorated by this killing. OK, she said that she likes the smell and essence of blood. She's also said in interviews she never washes her knife so that she can smell it and relive what she's done with it. She likes oh, the God. idea of there being blood on that knife, probably from multiple mm -hmm. people. So this is what experts literally just define as literal bloodlust. That's just, uh, you know, that term. She had it. So in this moment, she's killed John Chapman. She goes shopping for alcohol and decides she wants to kill again immediately. So she sends a bunch of texts to try and entice her next victim. Some speculate that Gary Stretch and Leslie Layton have now become an almost audience for her, and she sees them as people she wants to impress. So she wants to kind of like keep this, keep this killing streak going, right? Like she's got their full kind of attention, um, attention, you know, they're kind of in awe of her, I'm sure, those kinds of things. So who can she manipulate into coming over so she can kill again now? You guessed it. I already tipped my hand. Kevin Lee. She texts him to come over, and he's with friends and says he's going out, saying to them, this is a quote, she's going to dress me up as a woman and rape me. 
Apparently, oh this was one of a series of highly sexualized texts that she had sent him. Um, apparently, she would often make unusual or extreme sexual demands like this, and they apparently intrigued Kevin Lee, and she would he would normally go over and they'd have sex. But on this night, Kevin Lee leaves his office, heads to the house where Joanna had killed Lukash 10 days prior. So she was in that house, killed Lukash, went to this new bed sit, now she's back at the original one again, where she had killed 10 days before. She opens the door, brings him in, and immediately stabs him five times in the chest and neck. Now, he fights back. And this time, the first few cuts weren't enough to subdue him like they had been in the other two murders. But she does eventually take his life. She calls Gary and Leslie and orders them to help her get rid of the body. So, again, it feels like this is when that when they did it. It feels like it must have happened that night. But, again, bear with me. Gary cleans up the blood and then uh, Joanna dresses Kevin Lee in a black sequin cocktail dress. Leslie Layton was getting rid of Kevin Lee's car as he had been instructed. Then all three drove into the country and dumped his body. He was posed face down with the dress on, uh, naked from the waist down, with his butt up in the air. Mm. Reports have said it appeared he had also been sexually assaulted. Oh, Kevin Lee was described by his wife, Christina, as being the most optimistic person she'd ever met. She said he never complained about anything. She also said that they had a lot of fun together and a lot of laughter. At this point, Joanna is certain that someone is going to find these bodies. There's there's three out there. So, and, and again, like the timeline is tough. Maybe this is and I'm speculating. He she killed John Chapman early in the day. And then they move those two bodies and then she kills again and then she moves his body. That's the only thing that I can kind of surmise sure. from what I've, all of the research that I've done. Nothing really made it that clear. But at this point, she's certain someone's going to find the bodies. There's three bodies in ditches that are five miles apart from one another. Kevin Lee's on his own and then the other two are together. Um, so what does she do? Brings in another man to help her. In this moment. So now she's got Gary Stretch, she's got Leslie Layton, and she's got Robert Moore. Robert Moore had lent her something from his house to wrap around the body of John Chapman, so that makes it seem like he was kind of also knowing what she was up to. Um, now he would provide her and Gary Stretch with a safe house. So she literally just calls him and he comes. No questions asked. These men, that she would, they would, she would literally say jump and they would say how high. There's speculation that it's like they were older um, kind of more down on their luck people and that she just preyed upon them because she would use her sexuality, which I'll get into more later, but it's wild, the things that she pulled off. Um, and she gave them attention and made them feel special and made them feel like they were obviously a part of something very special. Uh, so they did whatever she asked. Joanna and Gary hid in his house for 48 hours, and then she and Gary headed off to Hereford, which is a border town between England and Wales, as Gary apparently knew the area. Um, but here is her first mistake. Her misstep, of course, is Kevin Lee has a wife, has a family. He has people looking for him right away. So 
Kevin Lee's wife, Christina, says he was stressed with work around this time, the money element of it. It was getting very difficult with him. He was used to giving people chances, as he did with Joanna, but he needed to evict people. He told Christina that Joanna was going to be this kind of enforcer character and help him. Christina says that Joanna told Kevin that Joanna's father had abused her, and so she killed him. Neither of these things are true. She told him that her father spent eight years in prison for, quote, raping her as a child. There's not, that's not true. He never did jail time. There's been no proof that he was abusive to her. Um, She also said that she had killed other people but never been caught. And what I love is that Christina said that was when she started to feel like maybe this woman was a liar. I was like, okay, interesting. I get it. Believe women. I do too. But it did feel just like pretty extreme, the idea that she'd kill her father and that that I feel like anybody's admitting to any killings is when I would start to go like, is this for real? Um, <laughs> sure. Christina says that soon Kevin was acting differently. He just wasn't himself. So when he did not come home on the night of March 29th, she got concerned. She called him. His phone was switched off, which he never, ever did. He was a landlord. His phone's always going to be on, right? Sure. Kevin had also told Christina that Joanne had told him she wanted to kill again. And that's what was the line. She, Christina felt like, you know, you know, bragging about killing people before was one thing, but specifically saying that she wanted to kill again was not something that normal people say. Again, I would argue maybe none of it's normal, but that's just me. Hours passed, and Christina contacted Kevin's business partner, Paul Creed. Now, according to Christina, she asked if he could send uh, Kevin's phone records. She went through them, saw one number that kept appearing. So then she asked Paul which houses were empty at the time. He gave her a list, and she says she went out to each one of those properties um, because she just felt like something wasn't right. One of the houses, which was known to be empty, when she first went, Lights were off. As she was passing by again, the lights were on. So she called Paul Creed and said, come into this house with me. He d- and, and you know, it's supposed to be empty. And then it's like, maybe we should call the police, actually. I think maybe we should call the police. They do. The police break into the house. There was no obvious signs of trouble, but the police said there was a very strong smell of bleach, and they did see some blood on the floor. That's when Christina said that she, in her mind at that point, she was like, oh, I think he's no longer with us. The next day, March 30th, a dog walker spotted Kevin Lee's body in the ditch and called the police. The police apparently showed up to Christina's house before the body had been identified, saying they were pretty sure it was him, as was she. Now the timeline, again, it gets hard to wrap your head around. I guess she's suggesting she did all of this detective work overnight of the 29th into the 30th. That could be possible. That's, there's no kind of I'm going by her account is the point. So she didn't get specific about the exact times or dates. So like I said, Kevin Lee was discovered March 30th near Newborough. His burnt out car was found 10 miles away from where his body had been placed. um, And the bodies of Lukas and John Chapman would be discovered together on April 3rd, five miles from where Kevin Lee had been found. We know that Joanna and Gary were in hiding from roughly the night of the 29th until roughly April 1st. We know that they were together in that safe house for 48 hours. And on April 1st-ish, that's when they set off for Hereford. We also know they would both end up being arrested in Hereford on April 4th. So what happened in those three days between them leaving town and their eventual arrest? How did the police figure out that they could have even been involved in these deaths? Well, tell me, I'll tell you, the story's about to get even wilder 
which I'll get into after the break. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, I like this. Well, you heard the lady. Grab a drink. Grab a snack. I'm thinking nachos, but it's your own place. You do what you feel. Uh, and we'll be back with more on Joanna Dennehy on this serial killer special on True Crime and Cocktails. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Before the break, I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll get myself like a quiet little snack that I can nibble on and no one will know. Uh, but then Lauren was talking about bloodlust and she doesn't like the knife to be dirty because or clean because she wants to be able to smell the blood. And I just have no interest now. So no snacks for me, dear people. Oh, I hope you have snacks for you. And Lauren... I know you've got more, and I can't wait to, again, lose my appetite. I may not have snacks, but I got facts. Oh, I... Well, fuck. You're talking in shirts now. You're talking in new... in merch now. I am. It's a gift. It's a gift. So, Joanna and Gary are on their way to Harrisford. They burgle a house in a remote area on the way, and then hook up with some local criminals to try to offload their stolen goods. They also pick up a minor local criminal named Mark Lloyd, who knew nothing about the murders, and they asked him to help navigate them around the area. Which is odd to me, because Gary said they should go there because he was familiar with the area, which makes me curious about whether he was initially going to be their victim, um, and that that's why they had asked him along. One of the items stolen in that burglary was a camera. Joanna and Gary documented what she would... Uh, they would documented themselves along that trip, which basically proved to be a goldmine of information and clues and evidence for police. So there are 29 images on the camera mapping out a 200-mile journey, showing them on the run. They're posing in some with silly smiles, loving and basking in the attention. Um, there's ones with her posing like she's going to lick a knife. Um, yeah. I will also add that the camera's images did lead police to various associates of theirs who filled in the blanks about what Joanna and Gary were doing during that that chunk of time. Because there was a question about when they went on the run to when they got arrested, Do we? is there more crimes that could have been committed that we didn't know about? Sure. Um, the police say that they... Uh, the police say that given what these people have testified, that they don't believe there was any other murders or, or attacks that went on in that time. 
um, that we don't know about. Uh, they also said that her reaction when she found out that the police were looking for them was described as celebration. She was jumping up and down in excitement. It speaks obviously to her grandiose sense of self and how truly jazzed she was that the eyes of the world were now upon her. So how were the police already onto them? I'm going to tell you. Her first misstep, as I mentioned before, was killing Kevin Lee, who had people that were looking for him right away, unlike her first two victims. And we know that his wife was worried when he didn't come home on March 29th. She reported him missing. So even though he was the third person murdered, he was the first body found, which I think is sad, but interesting. So as I've mentioned, a dog walker discovered Kevin Lee's body. I've described how he was posed. Um... A local reporter in the area named Steve Briggs said that there are roughly like two to three murders a year in that kind of area, but that this, with the body positioning, it was just something they had never seen before. It was very extreme. Police also received reports of an abandoned vehicle on fire on an abandoned stretch of road roughly 10 miles from where the body was found. Detectives run the license plate, and of course, it comes back being registered to Kevin Lee. This was the blue station wagon his wife, Christina, had also told police was missing. At this point, as I've said, Kevin Lee is the only body that's been found. Police knew that Kevin had a business that rented properties to people with criminal records, so they pulled a record of the records of the people renting from him, cross-referencing it with cell phones that pinged in the area of where the car was left, and Gary Stretch, <sighs> Leslie Layton, and Joanna Dennehy all pinged in that area. So you that's took how they your cell phones with like you had them turned on. Come on, I know. So, of course, police initially thought Gary Stretch would be responsible for this. He is seven foot three. He's a, you know, big kind of presence, right? Sure. Um, And, of course, they started looking at uh, closed caption CCTV videos from gas stations in the area, and they managed to find one because, again, Gary's recognizable. He's very, very large. Um, And that was at a gas station with Gary in Kevin Lee's car. So this was clearly like they were driving in multiple cars at this time. Um, there was a female in another car, which, of course, eventually got identified as Johanna Dennehy. I believe Leslie Layton must have been there at some point as well. I don't know if he was in that video or not. But she has a face tattoo. She has a star tattoo on one of her cheeks. I can't remember. I have it written down somewhere else. Um, which makes her very recognizable. So you've got a seven foot three guy and you've got a woman with a face tattoo. We're, you know. Now they've got a they've got a clear goal. Right. So that put Gary in possession of Kevin Lee's car at some point, which felt like a a huge piece of evidence. The officers decided they had to bring in Gary and Joanna for questioning immediately. But of course, neither could be found. So they issued something called a BOLO, which is a be on the lookout, B-O-L-O. Police were, were able to locate Leslie Layton, who tried to cover for Gary and Joanna, saying he didn't know what they were, but he did eventually fess up to the truth, saying they were on the run out east. So, using CCTV and GPS tracking devices, Gary Stretch's car was located 150 miles away from the scene of the body in Hereford. But by the time detectives had contacted the Hereford police, there was already another victim. 63-year-old Robert Robin Beretza, he was an ex-firefighter. He had been randomly attacked and stabbed five times in broad daylight. Ten minutes after that attack, there was another attack. This time, it was a 56-year-old man named John Roberts. Sorry, John Rogers. 
And both had the same story. Both men were walking their dogs, minding their own business when they were randomly attacked. Only in John Rogers' case, he was stabbed. They said that the medical uh, team stopped counting after they found the 30th stab wound. Oh, my God. But that it was probably more like 40. Um, Miraculously, both of these men survived these attacks. They were able to get swift medical intervention and... uh, Somehow they managed to survive, which is truly unbelievable. Uh, Police are panicking because now we've got two crimes happening within 10 minutes of one another. Things are escalating. Uh, Robin Baretza was stabbed five times. He called the police himself to report the crime. It was, of course, the middle of the day, a stranger attack. This is very rare for Hereford. Baretza was giving a description of his attackers. Police still assumed, oh, it's got to be Gary Stretch. And he's like, no, 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 it was a woman. She has a star tattoo on her face. John Rogers is questioned. He gives the same description of his attacker. Nope, it is a woman working alone with a star on her face. We know now that Gary was in the car. He was the getaway driver. So she was acting in the moment on her own. It wasn't like the two of them attacked together. It was solely her. So things are escalating. Police know they have to stop Joanna Dennehy. There are multiple victims. Um, Investigators are realizing Gary probably wasn't as much to blame for Kevin Lee as they thought. So we're going to step back now to for a second to Mark Lloyd, who I mentioned they picked up along the way. He was kind of on this ride with them at this point. Right. At first, he kind of gets swept up in the mania of the day. He's on, he's in a bunch of pictures that were found on that camera that they stole. He's also seen on CCTV footage entering a store with Joanna around 3.30 that day. They are almost intimate with each other in the video. They had, I mean, they'd only known each other for a short amount of time at this point, but like he's standing there. She puts her arms around him from behind. They're kind of like snuggling, looking a little bit, or so it appears. According to him, she was kind of like coercing him at that point. Like she had her knife in his back, kind of being like, get the cigarettes and let's go. Um, Joanna does take this opportunity, of course, to flirt with the shop girl who's working, asking her, and you can see on the video footage, her telling her to spin and then her kind of like making comments about like that she has a nice body or whatever. Um, That's not uncommon for Joanna, but we'll hear more about that in a little bit. At some point, um, they start to tell Mark Lloyd about what they've done. Joanna shows him a picture of Lukash in the wheelie bin, uh, deceased. At this point, she communicates she has not killed for days and she wants to rectify that. She tells Gary she, quote, wants to kill again and again. She was focused specifically on wanting to kill a certain amount of people in a very short time period because I think she thought that then she'd get notoriety as being this, like, crazy, frenzied rage killer. The number she said she wanted was nine because that's how many murders Bonnie and Clyde had done together. Interesting. Interesting. Um, and then she instructs Gary, stop the t- the car the next time you see a man walking the dog. Quote, I want to have some fun. Mark Lloyd says that she specifically said she did not want to kill women or children and to specifically find me a man with a dog. He also said that he was so afraid of her throughout this whole thing that he just went along with what was happening because he was convinced that she could kill him. He also says that that, that uh, CC's... CCTV footage of them in the shop was taken literally a minute before the first attack. And that timing does work out, which I'll get into as we go along. But it was so it was around 3.30. He said he wanted to say something to the shop girl in that moment, but he couldn't because Joanna was right there. They spot uh, Robin Baretza. 
He said he normally jogs, but for some reason on this day, he had taken his dog out for a walk instead. How tragic that if he had just jogged like normal, they would not have targeted him. Joanna jumps out of the car and just starts stabbing him. He asks her why, and she says, because I want you to die. Soon, she runs back to the car, leaving him for dead. Mark Lloyd says that during this time, he was arguing with Gary Stretch, saying he wanted out of the car. He didn't want any part of this. Gary kind of put his hand on him, threatened him, said not to move. He said, we just have to let Joanna do her thing. She gets back in the car. She says she wants more. She's not done. They got to find another person and takes a selfie. Just wants to commemorate the moment. Jesus. Find me another man walking a dog. Mark Lloyd says that they did. This, of course, was John Rogers, as we know, and that this attack was a hundred times worse than the first. We know with the first one, it was five stab wounds, and this one, it was around 40. Um, John Rogers says he felt what felt like a heavy punch in the small of his back. He thought it was a friend messing with him. He turned and saw it was actually Joanna Dennehy, and she had just stabbed him. Now she's stabbing him in the chest. The, the, the cycle path that they were on sloped down. And so he was kind of getting like backed up because she was coming towards him and it was on a decline. So he kind of starts to like lose his balance a little bit. Um, and he does eventually go down to the ground. He let the, the leash go for the dog because he thought the dog would run away. The dog wouldn't leave him. I know. Yep. Yeah. yeah. She just keeps yeah. stabbing. She apparently was saying, my boyfriend told me to do this. And she also said, oh, look, you're bleeding. I'd better do some more. Oh. He said, please leave me alone. She obviously wouldn't. He says that it was, you know, it was frenzied. So he wasn't necessarily staring at her face the whole time. He doesn't, he can't really speak to what her facial expressions may have been uh, specifically. But the one thing that he remarked was that she showed absolutely no emotion. She said, it, 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 he said it was like she was just matter of fact. That was kind of her vibe. He said he was just waiting for it to stop. He thought, this is it. This is how I'm going to die. There was so much blood everywhere. Um, witnesses say that once she stopped stabbing him, she licked the blood on her knife, grabbed his oh. dog, and walked back to the car, waving at people nearby, saying, hey, how's it going? Hello. Keep in mind, she must be covered in blood at this point. She's just stabbed a man 40 times. Um, I also have to say, as he was recounting this story, he kept using the term psychopath, but it sounded like he was saying psychopath, and it just felt very, like, synchronistic and creepy to me. But anyway. Sure. So the hunt is on. Police detectives, they find Gary Stretch's vehicle uh, at a house of one of his associates. They, again, were using GPS and pinging phones and all those kinds of things to literally... Because now they know, they're like, we've got to stop these psychos, and specifically her, in the moment. She's yeah. found sitting alone in the car with the dog, covered in blood. She has the blood-stained stained knife. Police speak to her. She gets out of the car. She's very compliant. They put her in handcuffs, put her in the van, take her into custody. She's never resisting them at all. Gary Stretch sees this happening from a, from a distance, takes off, first in another car, then he, for some reason, gets out of the car and starts to run. But a spoiler alert here, this was a very large seven foot three, beefy man. Uh, he was not a fast guy. So officers, of course, caught him very quickly and he was arrested as well. Apparently in the moment, he said to police, you've arrested me. Joe and me would have been the next Bonnie and Clyde, which is interesting because I don't know a lot of the details actually about Bonnie and Clyde, but in this case, Bonnie was doing all the killing. <laughs> 
He was kind of just yeah. there to facilitate. But I digress. There was also several high-value items found in their possession, presumably stolen because we know they did burglarize that house. That's right. the police's uh, that was the police's assumption. So Mark Lloyd said he watched her get put in a police van. Uh, police had surrounded him as well. Uh, Joanna's arrest had happened literally within one hour of the attack on John Rogers, uh, which again just speaks to how quick these police really were effective. They they wow. sprung into action and used technology and chased him down essentially. So meanwhile, this is of course April 4th, I believe. On April 3rd, two more bodies had been found in Thorny Dyke about five miles from where Kevin Lee had been found. They were partially submerged. They looked like they had been there for some time. In the case of Lukash, it's hard to speculate because we know that he had been in the garbage bin for some time. So it's hard to know whether that was just that he had been dead for some time or being in that area. Uh, forensics brought in a portable fingerprint machine um, to the scene of the crime to try and identify them in the moment. They were trying to, with a lot of speed, identify these people. Of course, the assumption was made immediately that they found three bodies in ditches. They've got to be connected. Yeah. Um, but criminologist Dr. Casey Jordan points out something interesting that I would like to as well. Trying to build a profile about Joanna is like almost impossible. And I think that's why this case appealed to me so much because my psychologist hat was on, but it was like, I got no frame of reference here. The first was a premeditated murder. She lured him to the house. The second was a premeditated murder, but she waited for him to be passed out so he wasn't fighting. The third, she lured him in again, but but he was much more scrappy um, than the, the previous one. And then there's two frenzied, spontaneous knife attacks with strangers. This is not typically how killers work. They they just don't. Right. Like, they killers are meticulous, serial killers. They they have their patterns. They have their, their things that they like to do. And this is just... It, she said it It just feels like you're building two profiles at the same time. It feels like we're dealing with two completely different people. Um, also, of course, a knife is a very savage way to kill somebody. There's a lot of blood. It's violent, traumatic. This is, of course, very abnormal traditionally for a female killer. Women don't tend to kill using knives. Um, typically, sure. poison is the number one way women will kill. Guns also... Women don't typically strangle victims because they're not as strong. Like, they don't typically strangle men because, sure. you know, traditionally, again, I'm speaking in general terms here, but there was a huge viciousness in these last two attacks, especially the last one, that suggests that she was getting bored, that she was like, it wasn't enough to lure somebody. Now it was like, I want it to, I want to spring it upon somebody and I want to just go completely ham in how I, I try and kill yeah. these people. Oh. So, pleasure. Pleasure of killing was her motive. That is not statistically a reason that women kill. It just isn't. And it's fascinating to me again. She later told people that she killed because, quote, she wanted to find out how cold she really was. And then it just kind of like got addictive for her. She also admitted that she cannot feel for other people. Um, women traditionally don't even typically become serial killers. Statistically speaking, it's a very small amount of women that even end up doing, uh, you know, killing multiple people. The The women that do are often partnered with a man. Um, but she wanted to do these killings on her own with the men just supporting her. And 
it almost, I almost started to think like, wow, how revolutionary if it wasn't so evil. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? Is, the, in, in the darkness, there is like sort of a, God, and they were so supportive of a woman. That's nice. Like in the dark. It's like, no, no, no. Yeah, this is right. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. This isn't the there, thing. It's, but yeah, it's, it's horrifying. But there is something, again, I, I can't wrap my brain around multiple men being like, you know what? Yeah, I'll help her murder. Well, I yeah. still also can't believe that she so calmly gave up when police found her because I thought she would for sure be pushing to get her number higher. I know. Well, buckle in. Oh, I can't wait. Joanna was booked in a Hereford jail on April um, April 4th, I believe, 2013, at 4.22 p.m. She states her name as Joanne Christina Dennehy, and her behavior on this CCTV footage is wild. She is literally caught on film, and this is with sound, with audio, I've watched the tapes, Flirting with everybody, everybody around her, men, women, doesn't matter. Um, she compliments her arresting officer while she's like staring at him. And then she kind of like runs her hands through her hair. She's saying things to him like, you're a good copper. You acted perfectly. Like, and the thing is, is the people all get disarmed by her. Everybody's like, oh, thanks. There's a woman that she spent, she gives a compliment to, and the woman's like, oh, thanks. These are like police officers. But she just had this like quality to her that she just knew how to charm people. And people ate it up. She was asked, how much have you had to drink today? She said, half a bottle of whiskey this morning. The expensive stuff. It's like, I love that she wanted them to know that. She also immediately asked what happened to the dog she had stolen from John Rogers. The police told her that he was in a kennel, and she said, oh, he's lovely. Not, didn't ask even if her victims had died, but was very concerned about that dog. So then she asks, what am I up for? They say, attempted murder and murder. She responds, and I quote, attempted murder and murder is nothing. It's like going down for a Sunday roast. Easy. Then, what am I up for? Attempted murder and murder? Well, it could be worse. I could be fat, black, and ugly. She's looking wow. around. Oh, yeah. She's so looking racist. around. I know. And, I was, and I don't know why that surprised me. I was like, why am I surprised she's a racist? But yep, through and through. And one of them said, you could be what? And she said, uh, she repeats herself, big, fat, black, and ugly. And but she's like looking around the room, like looking like it's like like she's like trying to get reactions. Do you know what I mean? Um, she continues to flirt with the desk sergeant. She says to him, and I quote, I like your eyebrows. He says, thanks. Then she says, you've got very distinctive eyebrows, don't you? He goes, oh, yeah, I plucked them. She goes, they go right up. They're really strict looking eyebrows. I'm like, I've never in my life seen or heard of anybody flirting with someone based on their eyebrows. But again. How much time have you spent with Eugene Levy? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> not enough. anyone in his orbit has not to enough. flirt with him for those eyebrows, right? At one point, I can't tell whether they were going to put handcuffs on her or give her prison clothes. I don't know what she was reacting to. I couldn't find that part of the video. But you can see her reaction in which she says, 
oh, amazing. That feels so good. Really sexy. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. She okay. is just full of bravado. It's like it's like she's just wanting everyone to know that nothing is going to rock her confidence, uh, which is especially evident in this final quote of hers that I'd like to share. She asks the guard, would you be cheery if you were up for attempted murder and murder? He says no. She says no. But I'm still smiling. Yeah. So... As she's getting booked into custody, she's asked if she has any medical conditions. She says yes, bipolar, schizophrenia, and epilepsy. She also says she has cuts all over her body. Now, UK law states that anyone showing signs of any mental disorders must be evaluated before anything else happens, including the police interrogation. So after she has disclosed this, she is removed from police custody and committed on a psychiatric hold for 10 days. There, the doctors will obviously assess her and determine whether she can understand the crimes that she's been accused of and whether or not she can participate in the judicial process. Um, some of the investigating officers said that not being able to question her for 10 days was infuriating for them and frustrating. It felt like she knew this rule and that she could have been manipulating the system. Um, they also didn't know what she was waiting for the police to come out with in terms of what evidence they had that maybe she could use that kind of against them. Um, That's when she gets diagnosed, of course, with uh, paraphilia sadomasochism, as I mentioned before. Um, Obviously, it is a dangerous combo. Uh, They also said that at this point that they feel she had borderline personality disorder due to her self-harming and looking for attention. This is, of course, on top of all of her past diagnoses, um, antisocial, psychopathic, all these things. Now, Police interviews are crucial, and they could not speak to her for 10 days. So they worried that she was going to come out of the psychiatric hospital and then saying, Gary Stretch coerced her. But it it was actually quite the opposite. She was basically freely admitting to anyone who would listen, including all of the doctors in the hospital, that she had killed people. One quote was, she was, uh, someone said, she seemed fully engaged in her own craziness. Uh, on On April 12th, uh, oh, this timeline might be a little bit off. She may have been arrested April 2nd. Again, it was really hard to figure out. But anyway, on April 12th, she um, doctors deemed her fit for a police interview and also said that she was fit to make her own plea as well. Serial killers, as we know, are often narcissistic. They won't show emotion, uh, but they are proud of what they've done, what, what they've done, what they've done. So police will typically just kind of let the person talk and tell their story. But Joanna... Sure. She decides she's not going to talk. So every question she's asked, did you kill this person? She would just say no comment. There's a recording of it. It's just her over and over saying no comment. She obviously does have the right to remain silent. But given all of her other personality traits, it's odd. The fact that she's been bragging to basically the psychiatric doctors that she's killed people. It seems that at this point, she's just kind of enjoying the game. So she is officially charged with two counts of attempted murder, three counts of murder, There was forensic evidence, the CCTV evidence. The police felt this was a very strong case. They were confident they would get a conviction, but obviously you never know. Hashtag justice for Nicole Brown Simpson. Um, Investigators' major concern was that she was going to enter an insanity plea. But we now know that the plan she had made with her lawyers was to go in and plead not guilty. So... November 18th, 2013, it's Joanna's pretrial hearing. Uh, 
She was laughing in the proceedings and truly shocked everyone in the room, including her own legal team, when she chose to plead guilty. They had agreed that she would plead not guilty and allow the, tr- the case to go to trial. People in attendance that day said there was such a shock in that moment that it rippled through the whole courtroom. Many killers will choose to hide behind the criminal justice system, claiming things like, I didn't intend to kill, but I have a drinking disorder. But Joanna was not choosing that road. She was so proud of what she did. This was almost like she was taking a metaphorical bow. Like it was like she was soaking in her moment. Um, it's like it was her also her final act of defiance that she was going against what she had told her lawyers, uh, essentially saying, I don't want to be controlled by anybody. My lawyers, the police, nobody. Um, she was going to, the, the legal team said that she was going to plead not guilty, saying she didn't understand her actions, but instead she literally came in, said guilty a bunch of times, and apparently told the judge to fuck off. <laughs> wow. <laughs> her okay. legal team is scrambling in the moment. No one had expected this. Some think this was her trying to kind of like secure her own notoriety. Um, This also meant there would be no trial. There would be no bringing out of evidence. So she closed the curtains on her own terms, right? So now she can continue to live on in her delusions. She was sentenced to life without parole, which is the most severe sentence you can get in the UK. She will never be released. Thank God. However, (laughs) four months later, Gary Stretch did appear in court as he was pleading not guilty, and he stuck to his plea. And some interesting facts about Joanna did come out. For example, when she killed John Chapman, Gary says she was ecstatic with joy, drenched in blood, and phoned Gary to tell him what she did, singing a song over the phone, the song, of course, being Britney Spears' Oops, I Did It Again. This, of course... (laughs) Why did I... Why did I not see that coming? Like, I know. As soon as you said Britney Spears in my head, I was like, well, obviously, if you're going to do Britney, you do Toxic. <laughs> no, I think it was, I that she was trying to be more but, literal, yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, for some reason, I didn't see that coming, but. Yeah. While we're at it, hashtag justice for Britney. <laughs> yeah, listen, we got a bunch of them in here. So this is, of course, just another sign of how truly cold-blooded she was and lost in her own delusion, her own reality, where what she was doing was okay. So around this time, Joanna was also already causing problems in the prison system. She was sent to solitary confinement, where she actually ended up staying for two years after a journal was found of hers that detailed a bloody escape plan involving murdering a female guard to take her keys and cut off her fingers in order to use her fingerprints to fool the biometric scanners in the prison, which unlocked some of the doors. I mean, on one hand, oh. On the other (laughs) hand, oh, that's smart. I know. I I know. I know. I know. So these details emerged uh, at the high court in 2016, as at that time, Joanna was seeking damages after claiming her human rights had been breached by being placed in solitary confinement for two years. She had been segregated because a credible escape plan, which I just outlined, involving her and two other prisoners, had been discovered. Her lawyer said she was a vulnerable inmate due to her history of severe personality disorders. However, the lawyer for the prison described Joanna as, quote, Arguably the most dangerous female prisoner in custody. (laughs) The lawyer went on to say she had gotten a taste for killing 
and did admit to the psychiatrist she believed she was sadistic. Sadistic. Uh, the government lawyers conceded that the segregation period between September 21st, 2013 and September 4th, 2015 was technically unlawful because it was not properly authorized by former Justice Secretary Chris Grayling. But the judge in the case, Judge Singh, ruled that her segregation was, quote, in accordance with the law and at all material times it had been necessary and proportionate. So the judge was having none of her saying she had her human rights violated. In 2017, Joanna had a, quote, intense friendship with fellow inmate Alexandra Cruzieras, um, a former college lecturer who was locked up for racially abusing a hospital doctor, biting a nurse, and assaulting three police officers, spitting at two of them. Alexandra had since been freed from prison, but the two of them sparked another security alert when she tried to pass Joanna a ring during a scheduled visiting time. Joanna, who has spoken about being bisexual, then became involved with street robber Haley Palmer after they fell in love behind bars at the HMP Bronzefield Jail. In 2018, the pair were found with severe injuries to their neck and wrists after they had formed an alleged suicide pact. In 2019, Haley's sister Michelle demanded that the prison governor refuse Joanna and Haley's request to get married because she feared that any marriage would end in either Joanna harming Haley or Haley taking her own life. Michelle learned of their wedding plans when Haley wrote to her from prison saying she was in love with the murderer who protected her. She added, I can and do trust her with my life. Michelle also told how her sister and Dennehy both narrowly avoided taking their own lives in this failed suicide attempt. She said, Haley told me it was her idea to end their lives because the governor was going to split them up. In 2020, Joanna allegedly started dating a woman named Emma Aitken, who was 25 at the time. Joanna was 38. Emma Aitken was jailed in 2014 alongside her father and boyfriend for beating a man to death and then setting his body on fire. She got a minimum term of 12 years. She and Joanna met at a high-security women's prison that she was moved into from the other one called Low Newton in County Durham, and were said to have gift- they were said to have gifted each other embroidered cushions with each other's names on them. Quaint. But by May 2021, it was reported that Joanna had gotten back together with Haley Palmer, her previous fiancé, who had subsequently been released from prison after 16 years and was known to be taking legal advice on the outside trying to arrange their wedding. According to Haley, the only reason Joanna hasn't killed anyone in prison so far is because Haley wouldn't let her. A friend of Haley said, quote, It's a very strange relationship. It's very weird to say, but they seem good for each other. Haley speaks about Joanna like she's her high school sweetheart. They talk every single day and fully intend to get married. Haley apparently also joked that they would not be allowed to cut their wedding cake because there's no way they'd let Joanna have a knife. Uh, I mean, the idea that you think you're the reason she hasn't killed anybody, the the idea that you think you could control her in any way is, I'm sorry, Haley, laughable. I, well, wait for it. Wait for Mm. it. The couple reportedly wanted to be married by the end of 2021, but apparently Joanna stopped calling Haley at the end of 2021, and I guess they've now split. Um, Haley, of course, is now a free woman. Uh, She opened up recently about Joanna, revealing that Joanna had, quote, no regrets. She would laugh about her crimes. In a letter she wrote to Haley, Joanna said, quote, you have a fully committed psychopath 
Together we will travel a path so beautifully dark, so mentally and physically dangerous, we will cease to know where I begin and you end. And to that I say, was that written by her or was that written by Megan Fox to Machine Gun Kelly? (laughs) (laughs) It was just very reminiscent of that Instagram post Megan Fox made. There's there's a wear vials of each other's blood sort of vibes. And I'm glad that they seem to not be channeling it into rage killings. Anyway. That we know of. (laughs) That we know of, exactly. So it's also been reported that a prison officer got in trouble after being found with X-rated letters written to him from Joanna. The graphic letters were found in the senior officer's home during a search who, uh, by officers who were investigating an alleged relationship he was having with another female prisoner. The man was from Slough. He was arrested on suspicion of sexual assault in May 2020, following reports of alleged offenses taking place from May 2018 to May 2020. A source said, quote, the officer fancies himself and is very cocksure. He was quite senior, so he could move around various wings, including the one where Dennehy was housed. It's been reported by Joanna Sorry, it's been reported that Joanna has also been sending letters to many different men from prison. One was to author Christopher Barry D. She found out that he had been researching her case, and so she contacted him. They began a correspondence. He said her letters were eloquent, beautifully written, and definitely by someone who has a good education, which is so interesting because as far as we know, she dropped out of high school when she was 15. So this does speak to her natural, extreme intelligence. Which also is a kind of a serial killer. So (laughs) he went to visit Joanna in prison in 2015 when she looked him in the eyes and said, quote, killing you would be good for me. At that point, he knew, oh, I've been trying to get into her head and she's been trying to get into mine. And oh, shit, I think I got to get out of here. (laughs) That's probably a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Many people believe that Joanna will absolutely kill again the first chance she gets. And judging by the way, I think she can manipulate men into doing anything she seems to tell them. And the fact that we know that she's writing to multiple men. My concern is that she's going to have someone kill for her on the outside. Or that someone is going to do that to try and impress her or something. After all, it seems unlikely that Joanna had any real feelings for any of her accomplices. She would just take what she needed from them and then move on. Um, She was also obviously able to easily charm them. Uh, They were flattered potentially by, like I said earlier, the attention from a younger woman. And uh, with nothing but time in prison, a lifetime in prison, I could see her enjoying the game of trying to control more of those types of men from afar who were interested in letting her do that. As for the men involved in her crimes, Gary Stretch was sentenced to life in prison with minimum 19 years before parole. Leslie Layton was given 14 years for his involvement. Robert Moore was given three years, and the judge said that like Gary, Robert was clearly under Joanna's spell. Mark Lloyd did not stand trial for any crime in relation to this. Now, again, just wanting to touch on one more time, her weapon of choice being a knife is up close and personal. There's no distance like you get from a gun. Um, Stabbing is just typically, statistically, and I know that gender is a construct, but forgive me, for the cases that we're talking about using historical data, she, it it just breaks the mold because it's just, I don't know that there has been any cases, anyone else that's done the things in the kind of way that she has. Um, 
There's also an argument by some that some would classify her as a spree killer rather than a serial killer, as she seemingly had no real return to normal life once she started killing. Like, once she did that, it, she just remained in this frenzied spree, which I think you could also argue Richard Ramirez. I feel like he went on a spree for some time and didn't really kind of come out with it or come out of it. Um, some argue... Was her choosing of this method a way to prove that she was stronger than men? Many said that she had an extreme hatred for men. We don't know where that came from. Is there a possibility that her father did abuse her? Again, from all of my research, there was nothing putting anything, nothing putting any air into that story. It feels impossible to me that there seems to be no reason for her to be this way. But more on that in a minute. For our purposes in this next section, we're not going to call her a spree killer because she does also technically fit the definition of a serial killer. And she is one of only three women in UK history convicted of serial murder. Who are the other two women? Side note. Hey! I shouldn't have been as joyous about... <laughs> I was like, joyous over the side note. Of course. Not the topic. Nobody's joyous over this topic, I can tell you. No, no. So the other two were Rose West, who is still currently in prison for her crimes. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And Myra Hindley, who has passed on. So here's a little about Rose West. Fred West was 27 when he met 15-year-old Rosemary at the bus stop. 27? And 15. The couple soon married, moved in together against the will of her father, and a couple years later, Fred was sent to prison for a stretch of time. While there, 17-year-old Rosemary West became responsible for his 8-year-old stepdaughter Charmaine, along with their daughter together, Anne-Marie. Rosemary West grew to hate uh, Fred's stepchild Charmaine. Um, Charmaine went missing in the summer of 1971, and when Rose was asked about it, she claimed, oh, she's gone to live with her mother, and bloody good riddance. Later, the child's mother, Rena West, came to look for Charmaine, and then Rena went missing as well. This would become a recurring theme in the West household. Um, it should also be noted that during this time, Rose began doing sex work in their home, uh, to make money while her husband was in prison, and when he got out of prison... He would watch her do that. From inside their modest, semi-detached home in Gloucester, 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 I think it's Gloucester, England, uh, they began a sadistic killing spree together. They would open their home to boarders. They would offer rides to vulnerable young women. Once in their home, uh, the women would likely never leave again. The house was dubbed a house of horrors. Uh, They would take in renters, assault them, murder them. The children in the family, including Rose's two biological daughters and one son, fared no better. They were wildly physically sexually abusive. Um, May, one of the daughters, recalled the shame and disgust she felt while booking men for her mother's sex work. And Marie says, people say I'm lucky to have survived, survived, but I wish I had died. I can still taste the fear, still feel the pain. It's like going back to being a child again. Chilling. Both May and Anne-Marie were repeatedly raped by their father. They were also raped by men who would pay Rose for sex and their uncle. Anne-Marie even became pregnant and infected with a STD from her father when she was a young teen. Jesus. Oh, yeah. 
Um, it's, it was bleak. It's bleak. In 1992, their youngest daughter confessed what was happening. Social services were alerted. The children, uh, the daughters were briefly removed, but they were too frightened to testify against their parents, so were consequently returned to them, which is... Oh, no. Yeah. Nope, nope. The cellar in the house was where they would torture people. It was also the primary burial ground once the victims were killed. Once the cellar was filled, the remainder of the victims were put under the back patio. They seemed normal in the public. Uh, but the household carried on in this horrifying way for years until Heather, the couple's oldest mutual child, disappeared in June 1987. Um, she maintained that she would she didn't vanish. She made a decision to leave. Uh, there was also a dark joke about misbehaving that the children would end up winding up under the patio like Heather. Um, and uh, social workers investigating the potential of abuse consequently looked under the patio. And that's when they found everything else as well as in the cellar etc they obviously found the bodies of charmaine her mother reina i mean this has been going on for 25 years at this point the victims still had restraints and gags attached to them one was mummified with duct tape uh sporting a straw poked out from a nostril suggesting that they gave her just enough oxygen to keep her alive while they did what they did to her uh, most had been decapitated or dismembered one had been scalped these people were fucking demons um, at first, Fred took all the blame with Rose playing dumb. Eventually, her culpability was revealed. She was sentenced to life in prison in 1995. Fred killed himself while in jail. Now, Myra Hindley was one of the Moore's murderers. She and her partner, Ian Brady, uh, were convicted in May 1966 of murdering three children between 1963 and 1965. She was convicted of two of the three murders and of being an accessory in the third murder as she was not physically present when Ian Brady committed it. The convictions of them came just six months after the death penalty had been abolished and less than two years after the last execution in Britain, although more than 10 years had passed since the last execution of a woman in Britain. Mm -hmm. um, they buried the children in shallow graves on Saddleworth Moor. From 1985 until his death, Ian was held in a mental hospital where he was on a long-term hunger strike and was being force-fed through a tube. In 2001, he published a book on serial killing. In 1986, the two of them confessed to two more murders. They returned to the Moors to help police find the body of one of the victims, but the final body has still not been found. Brady died at age 79 at Ashworth Hospital in May 2017. Now, Myra Hindley. The judge recommended she should just do 25 years, feeling like maybe once she's away from Ian, then she'll be rehabilitated, suitable for parole. It's his bad influence, right? Well, that minimum term was endorsed in 1982, but by this stage, reports were saying that she was being rehabilitated in prison, that she'd found religion, rejected Ian Brady and her past actions. But then her sentence got increased to 30 years in 1985 and finally to a whole life sentence in 1990, though she was not informed of this whole life sentence until four years later in December 1994. She made three appeals against the whole life sentence, but each appeal was unsuccessful. She died in jail at the age of 60 in November 2002, less than two weeks before a long-anticipated law lord's ruling, which could have potentially secured her getting out of jail. But we will never know. Death penalty side note within a side note. <laughs> in the 20th century, 145 women were sentenced to death in England and Wales, but... Only 14 of the sentences were carried out. That gives the reprieve rate of over 90%. From 
1900 to 2021, 55 women have been put to death in the U.S. And there are 575 documented instances as of December 31st, 2020, beginning with the first in 1632. So over a lot of time here. These executions constitute 3.6-ish percent of the total of 16,018 confirmed executions in the United States between 1608 and 2020. 17 death-sentenced women have been executed since 1976 in the U.S. From 1867 to the elimination of the death penalty for murder in Canada, which happened on July 26, 1976, 1,481 people were sentenced to death, but only 710 were executed. Of those executed, only 13 were women. The death penalty was de facto abolished in Canada in January 1963 and de jure abolished in uh, September 99. Um, In 1976, there was a bill, Bill C-84, enacted abolishing the death penalty for murder, treason, and piracy because there are some service offenses under the National Defense Act that continued to carry a mandatory death sentence. I had no idea about this. If committed traitorously, although no one has been executed for that since 1945, it was still on the table until 1999, which blew my mind. Now, I'm going to wrap things up about Joanna Dennehy. And by doing that, I would like to read a quote from Michelle Bowles. You'll remember, I mentioned her earlier. She was one of their neighbors. She considered herself a friend of John Chapman's. She said about Joanna, Joanna was well-smoken, never swore, quite pleasant, loved babies, excellent with children, didn't have a problem with her. They would say hello to each other. But we also know that this is a woman who didn't want to care for her own infant children. So the idea that she was excellent with children and loved babies chills me to my core because to me, that is Joanna learning that she has to act exactly the opposite of how she feels. So she managed to put on this mask that was a direct opposite to who she really was inside. Because we know she was deceitful, irresponsible, impulsive. She lacked remorse and empathy. She completely focused on her own needs. And these are all traits of psychopathy. Some say she was diagnosed with her psychiatric disorder um, as she also had the following traits. Superficial charm, pathological lying, diminished capacity for remorse. One expert said that they believe that Joanna can't cope with emotional closeness. So she self-medicates, as we know, using alcohol, and that having children may have been unbearable for her because she just can't handle, this is a theory, she can't handle being emotionally close to another person. And I don't need to explain to you, you're you're the mother, that when faced with that, it felt so unbearable. That's why she acted in the ways that she did. Um, But wait, let's not forget. Oh, right. Her children. Where have they been in all of this? We know that they got out of her area and her dad dad got them away in 2009, but she was convicted of these crimes in 2013. Let's hear a little bit about that. So in 2013, her oldest estranged daughter, Cheyenne Trainer, who was around 13 at the time, was also wondering about her mom. She and her sister had not seen Joanna for the four years since her dad got them away from her. She wanted to know what her mother had been doing, why she hadn't reached out to Cheyenne, 
Why is she not here? Why am I not good enough? Were the kinds of questions that she talked about in an interview. She said she always hoped that her mom would knock on the door as she had a lot of questions for her. Shortly after Joanna was caught, her family was contacted. Cheyenne was at a sleepover at the time. Again, she was 13. Her dad, John, called her and said, you have to come home as I have some bad news. He said, your mom stabbed someone. Cheyenne says she fell to the floor and started crying. And the first thing she said was, will I turn into her? Will that be me? Which is so heartbreaking. And I never thought about that before. That the children of killers, especially a serial killer, that must be such a mindfuck. That you have some yes. of that person's DNA. Does that mean that it's going to awaken in you when you're some age? I mean, I have goosebumps. Like, I, I just never even thought about that aspect. I thought about how it would ruin right. someone's life, but I never thought that that would be the first place a 13-year-old girl would go. Heartbreaking. Right. So, um, days after that... She says her world crashed down. There were media outlets parked in front of their house. She had to be escorted by police to and from school. Eventually, they took a train to kind of get away from things, and they had to have the police escort them to the train station. It was just horrific. So Cheyenne also speaks about how this new version of Joanna, this killer, was not the person she felt she grew up with. She said, I lived in the same house as her. I've held her hand. I've kissed her goodnight. So she just couldn't grapple with what drove Joanna to do that, to, which is what I'm coming up again and again and again here, right? Sure. It sounds to me like they didn't necessarily have a typical mother-daughter relationship, but that she didn't see this in her childhood. It feels like her dad probably shielded the kids from as much of her toxic behavior as he kind of could. Um, sure. She said that she, Cheyenne said she wanted to know, why didn't she think of the ripple effect that her actions would have on everyone else, on her, on her family, on the families of all of the victims? It's not just about the people who lost their lives. Uh, a psychologist named Dr. Anna Colton says that this is one of the most disturbing and distressing things for a child to experience, and especially the genetic question of it all. Am I destined right. to do this myself? The news coverage made it even worse for Cheyenne. She said that her dad tried to protect her but it was all over the news. He sa she said that she was kept away from it until it was in the media. One day she went into a co-op and saw the front page of a paper and it was the picture of Joanna licking the serrated knife and oh. it said she'd killed somebody and Cheyenne broke down in public. Dr. Anna Colton says, Cheyenne probably should have been warned about what was in the paper. It would not have made it easier, but at least she wouldn't have been blindsided in the moment in public. Yes! Oh, and I also feel like John was... Again, I can't believe I'm giving this man credit. He was a predator, but, you know, he he did, I think he was trying his best. He thought keeping it from the kids was probably a better move. Sure. So um, there was many details at that time that still hadn't been reported. So in 2018, Cheyenne made the choice at age 18 to visit Joanna in prison. In the five oh, years wow. since Joanna had been incarcerated at that point, no family had ever visited her. Nobody. She'd had no visits from anybody, family-wise. Cheyenne said she had a meltdown when she was going in and waiting for her mom, but that her curiosity and her need for closure just drove her to stick with it. She said that her mom had a lot more tattoos and piercings. She said it didn't, it wasn't her mom in a sense. She looked completely different and she was a completely different person. But this and this broke me. 
She said the moment she first saw her mother, even though she knew all of these things and she looked completely different, everything disappeared for her and she just ran to her. She said she just wanted her mom so bad. And I was like, that's so sad. And I commend her for her honesty because I think it would be very easy to hide that. But I think it's very brave that she told the truth, which is in that moment, I was just a little kid again who wanted her mother. So she asked Joanna why. Why did she do this? Why did she cause all this suffering? And Joanna said she wasn't happy and she just flipped. But she was fully aware of what she was doing. This shocked Cheyenne and she said she felt really hurt that her mom would say that to her. She knew she asked for the truth, but it still hurt. Um, She said it was clear that her mother doesn't feel remorse and never will. It was after that visit that Cheyenne decided she would cease all contact as she feels this person is no longer her mother and Cheyenne did not like the person that she had grown to be. Cheyenne also felt ashamed to be be who she was for some time, but in the interview I was watching, she said she feels differently now as she knows she is her own person. And I commend her because this is a weight that no one on the planet deserves. Yeah. So I am just truly perplexed by this case. Every time I try to put my psychologist hat on, which is my favorite thing to do on this show, I keep coming up empty. Personality disorders, we know, are learned disorders, meaning... You're not born with it. It is something that your brain does to try and cope with immense amounts of trauma. Our brains are these powerful things that want to protect us from feeling things that are overwhelming. So when someone experiences a large amount of trauma, things will splinter and there will be these behaviors that a person adapts to protect themselves. It's literally the brain trying to protect you from yourself, which is fascinating to me. But it's not like, you know, you're born with something In terms of personality disorder, it is something that you learn, quote unquote, for lack of a better term, over time. But we know. Because these traumas usually happen in childhood, right? If we're talking about this level of of personality disorder. Yeah. Is there a massive trauma that Joanna has somehow kept secret? Is, Is just bizarre to me that she was driven to commit these horrific vicious crimes, ones that are typically never carried out by women, hating men, wanting these men dead, breaking a breastbone she's stabbing so hard. And again, I know gender is a construct. I'm not saying that that's not true, but it's just fascinating to me that this woman who had an idyllic for lack of, unless there's again, some huge secrets that we don't know about. She had this great childhood And then got driven to do something that's so far above and beyond what we've ever historically seen from female serial killers. The female serial killers that have killed like she's killed had huge amounts of trauma that they were working out. There was there was a way to explain it. But with Joanna, I keep coming up with a big question mark. Um, I guess what I'm saying is. Maybe there is something else in play, but right now, I don't have the time to figure out how Richard Ramirez could have possibly astral projected from beyond the grave. If you don't know what I'm referring to, listen to our Elisa Lamb episode featuring uh, the Night Stalker. It's not a romp like the Glee curse, but there's lots of info in there and some batshit (laughs) theories coming from me. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Lauren Ash. (laughs) 
I mean, it has to be said. Oh, shit. Like that. Yeah, I know. What? What a fucking ride this has been. You think it's going to go one way and then it goes another. Okay, so I'm I'm going to collect myself for a moment. Yep. We'll take a quick break, refill drinks, hit the can, do what you need to do, and then we'll be back. I'll go through my crazy-ass notes and we'll see what happens on uh, the rest of this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. I think the term I'd use to describe the moments leading up to that break would would probably be bleak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, wow, Jesus, there was, yeah, wow. Okay, so what fun, because now it's my turn for the chaotic notes that are going to be like, why are we bringing that up? This is how we work. This is just yes. how we work. Uh, number one, I love Charlize Theron. Yeah, she's great. I love her so much. Um, Marika, that was your character name on Super Fun Night. It was, and I didn't want I didn't want the the synchronicity, yeah. but yeah, here we are. Here we are. Um, what happened in that year and a half that she was gone? Great question especially when he says she came back a different person i know for me it's something about something that happened at that age like 13 to 15 when her personality kind of seemed to shift and then again when she was gone for that year and a half i think something similar and fucking dark went down in those times i think something happened when she was younger and then in that year and a half, something happened that was similar enough to it that it kind of like brought it up again in her brain and really, really uh, messed her up. I think you've um, got to be onto something there. It's got to be something the family doesn't know about again. Like, because if, because, yeah. like, and, I'll, and I'll let you, I'll let you get through your notes. But, but again, to me, it's like, it just has to, because if there's no explanation for this, then what? Then she's just a literal demon. Like, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Like. That's, there's entire, like, again, like, there's entire careers devoted to this, to the psychology of of killers and the yep. fact that it's, like, 
So you're telling me her complete li- her life was completely perfect, nothing bad ever happened, and then she rage killed. I just can't. I can't wrap my head around it. It feels it feels like that's just not not it. Right. Well, and the fact that she was showing up drunk to school, I'm like, did a teacher get in- inappropriate? Interesting. Did a, te- did a male teacher specifically because of her rage of wi- of men? Yeah. Was there something that a man did that kind of like did something in her brain where part of her brain was like, we block this, protect ourselves. And the other part of her was like, no, stand up for ourselves, make it so it never happens again. And then something went down in that year and a half. She was gone. Um, Gary, the uh, stealing, going into that place, (laughs) stealing a single chocolate, but then still getting caught. Sounds like an episode of Mr. Bean. It really does. It really just, does. A what? seven foot tall Mr. Bean. Yeah. Yeah. A single chocolate. Also, what would, how tiny would that chocolate have been? You know? Like and also, just... well, he's also seven foot three. He's probably somebody that likes to indulge in more than one chocolate. Um, yeah. I just we, like, was that worth it, Gary? Probably oh, not. You didn't even wear gloves. Like, I just can't. I can't. <laughs> uh, again, Men willing to do anything for a psychotic woman sounds like our evil genius episode. Oh, yes. I didn't even think of that. You're right. Uh, Smelling the knife and actual bloodlust is the most terrifying thing you have ever said to me on this (laughs) show. Sorry. (laughs) It's just because I can picture it. And I'm like, that's horrifying. Because if I smell blood, I'm like, I'm out. Yeah. I'm out. I'm like, no, I guess... uh, (laughs) I was going to say, I was going to say, I'm like Bella before she turned, but no, she was a little bloodlusty before she turned. I'm making a, a uh, Twilight reference, of course. Forgive me. Um, why do all these men want to help her? And I'm I'm referencing Joanna, but I could also have been referencing Bella. <laughs> because Great point. I never understood that either. Uh, thank you for your use of the term burgle. It is correct, but for some reason, the term is very adorable to me. Um, Saying that Joanna had childlike excitement over the police catching her and over committing the murders is so surprising for someone who had an allegedly normal childhood. I agree. Um, How did I not know what Bolo stood for? (laughs) Because I'm going to be honest, I did not. You put out a bolo. I didn't realize it meant something. Duh, Christy. I've never um, even heard it before. I, I'm impressed that you've even heard of bolo. I I watch a lot of uh, police procedurals. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, 40 stab wounds. Yeah. I, I just can't. Um, when you said the phrase, find me a man with a dog, the fear in my throat for that dog. I was like, I know. why with a dog? Why does it have to be a man with a dog? What are you going to do to the dog? I I don't know if it's a case of because she f- wanted the extra in case the dog would try and attack her. Like she wanted the challenge. Why specifically uh, in that moment did it have to be a man with a dog? Does that go back to something when you were like 13? Was there like walking home from school and a man with a dog, something happened to you? I'm just saying. Something has to be connected somewhere. Yeah. The fact that she was had a very strict no women or children, what's up with that? 
what has a man done to you is i know she is a horrific person that i wouldn't even call a human being so i'm not being like man did something but a man did something to her to create this hate she has for men what she has done is insane and is not i'm not blaming someone else for what she has done but still i i just don't get it with this person um wanting to be like bonnie and clyde is inter- they're an interesting set of like heroes for lack of a better word for a single individual yeah because bonnie and clyde are very like bonnie and clyde it's the two of them together where she was like i'm gonna do this i want to kill on my own i just want to drive her then you're looking more driving miss daisy than you're looking bonnie and clyde yeah um licking the blood off a knife i (laughs) nope (laughs) not interested uh when she was flirting with the cops and you said the comment was like you did it perfectly the first thing that popped in my head was, is she a director now? Directing the way, like being like, hey, you acted that exactly the way you were supposed to. You know, that kind of thing. Didn't. Well, I mean, she's arguably, arguably, um, she's been acting her throughout all of this, right? Like her, her yes. ever being able to like act like a normal person is acting. So yeah, it's interesting that she, it's, you're right. That she, it's, it's interesting her wording of that for sure. It's also just the idea of her ever being seen as a vulnerable inmate. I know. I can't. I can't. I also, I mean, shout out to her for referencing Brittany. Uh, Not in the way we'd like, but um, again, she does something horrific and her go-to is like a childish sort of thing. So she reverts to childlike behaviors after this horrific thing has happened. And there's just, there's gotta be something. We don't know what it is. Or I don't know how we'll find out, but we've, there's gotta be something. And I, I just can't. And this Haley that wanted to marry her so bad. Oh, Haley, I, Haley, you can do better. Oh, I know. Haley, let's, let's, let's move on. I also want to know why she stopped speaking to uh, Haley, but you know what? Yeah, it's not, uh, it's it's not it's not my circus, not my monkeys, not not uh, because after you said that she heard someone was researching her, and then she turned around and reached out to them and was like, "Hey," I'm like, "No, no, 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 I don't." need our names with her name linked on the internet somewhere and she hears this and then is like i'm gonna contact them that's a hard pass joe it's a hard <laughs> pass <laughs> you can listen reach out. I, i'm not gonna respond <laughs> nope i've gotta pause this i'm so sorry yeah. i don't know what's going on in the other room but there's a lot of noise i'm so yeah. sorry no no i'm just like what is happening Sorry about that, dear listeners. I just had some very odd noises in my home, which I went to investigate. Nothing there. So that's everyone's favorite kind. Anyway, (laughs) getting back to the case. Yeah, I think you brought up some great points about I hadn't connected that um, the childlike responses that she was having to things. But I definitely think you're right. I think there's something to that. They're just, again, I'm sure that 
it, there is some world where it's possible where somebody out of nowhere just snaps and becomes a new person and starts killing people. I just, I have a hard time thinking that it's not, you know, some something that happened to her in her childhood or in her youth that was, she was reminded of again in that weird year and a half that she just yeah didn't uh, contact her family. That's weird. I just, there are so many things to this that I'm going to keep coming back to. Oh, that's just so weird because it just doesn't, I mean, I get why you wanted to do this because there's something about her that I just, I don't get it to, to want, wanting to kill someone. You're so full of rage. Uh, Okay. But to the point of like, I want to feel that knife go into their body. I know. I want to be covered in blood. I want to taste the blood. I don't want blood in my mouth. <laughs> I, I don't. D- few do. Few do, I feel I like. I don't want to smell it. I don't want anything with it. And uh, I just don't. I will. I don't get it. I understand the uh, psychologist hat thing because I just, you want to make sense of it, but then you're just like, but it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, but for real, though, Joanna, we're not interested in contact. <laughs> Even if you are going to lie to me and tell me you would answer all of my questions, I'm going to politely screenshot your message to my co-host over there and we're <laughs> never going to speak of it again. Well, that's the thing. Like, there's also... There's just no way to trust her. Like she's a she's a known pathological liar. So it yeah. it's it's also like yeah, in the world of would we get the real story? We'd never know. We would never know. And that is secondary to the point that we don't want to be contacted by anybody. We don't want anybody involved in anything contacting us. We're good. Nope. Nope. We're good. We don't want. <laughs> she's a serial killer. We don't need. Um, uh, the people call, uh, the perpetrators of the crimes that we're speaking of we don't need them to reach out we no. don't um no interest in uh pen pal nope um with uh, a serial killer no interest uh in uh, no if you get joy from killing people not interested not interested not interested nope i will never ever stop thinking about her plan to escape from prison. I know. I know. I, I would I like know. that uh, to remember forever. But um, this all leads up to me saying, Laura Nash. Yeah. Thank you for your research. What a horrifying journey. <laughs> I know. I know. The, the facts know. were horrifying. Yeah. The research was exemplary. Thank you. And thank you, dear listeners, for taking this wild, wild, and bleak, it got bleak there for a minute, journey with us. We appreciate your support. As always, make sure to give us a follow on the socials. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, or on Twitter at Not Detectives. And if you would like 
more time with these chuckleheads, and you're not a serial killer, <laughs> head over to patreon.com slash truecrimeandcocktails. There are polls for future episodes, monthly live Q&As, bonus episodes, more. If you're looking for more, Patreon's the place for you. And if you're looking to snag some True Crime and Cocktails merch, head to truecrewmerch.com, the only place to get the merch everywhere else is just a pirate. Lauren, would you like to tell the people about our next episode? Yes. On the next episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Lou Perlman. Oh, that's right. For those who may not be familiar with the name, Lou Perlman is the man behind Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. And oh, the nostalgia that episode is going to bring out. I cannot wait. Lauren, would you like to say goodnight to the people? Good night, future time traveling us. Good night, Dave Grohl. <laughs> <laughs>